What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to this week's episode of Armchair Producers, episode 134. I am one of your hosts, George Terran, alongside the man, the myth, the living legend, and seed of God, Mr. Travis Croft. How are you, sir? Fine and dandy. I'm not sure I earned that this week. Um, uh, yeah, you need more, more descriptive t-shirts. <laughs> Stop it. You're telling people the behind the scenes of how the I secrets, get your name. No, no, not our, our secrets. If anybody wants to see what I'm talking about, you should definitely tune in. Uh, mm-hmm. Roughly 7.30 Australian Eastern Summertime, Twitch, YouTube. And you can see what we're talking about. But uh, how are you this week? You have survived another week without the Rona? Uh, I have survived another week without the Rona that I'm aware of, at the very least, because, you know, I could possibly have it and be asymptomatic. Who knows? But I am feeling fine and dandy. Um, been a crazy week. I've had renovations on Frybrain Studios. Whole new floors put in. It's been it's been a thing, but uh, the floors are looking special and have moved things around a little bit. You can see something that I will be talking about a lot on the show. We've got a critical role um pops there because the critical role show is coming to amazon on the 28th Woo! next week basically next i'm looking week. forward to this because i don't understand what this show is i don't get it <laughs> i am so interested to see how you react to it <laughs> have you uh, watched I, I, trailers? It, it sounds like it sounds like goggle box for nerds <laughs> well the 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 animated show is it's literally a, an animated show of the stories of that. It is not them live playing or anything like that at the same time. That is the critical role thing. This is entirely based off of the first campaign and then now on to the third one. Anyway, that's something to look forward to. We will hear a bit more about that when we get to it. Yes. Our chain movie this week was chosen by me, of course, the 90s <laughs> classic reality bites. Mm-hmm. Um, should be crack on with the show i mean i think it's gonna might be a, a shorter show this week because i know you've been busy and um yeah. i've actually been kind of consumed by just one or two things so um but i think uh, also uh i hopefully you've come up with your 2021 list of uh top five films i've i've got a list i actually wrote it down as well so um, I will talk talk it through, but um, a little teaser for, for that section as it comes through. Feeling a little light on quality movies for the last year. Definitely consuming. It was a difficult task. I had to, It was not an easy thing for me to come up with mm. five, but I felt like really deserved it. Yeah, and to be fair, two of them were from the year before, but I didn't get around to actually seeing them mm. until this year. Um, so... I'm- I'll allow it. I'll allow it. But I think it was definitely, having been in lockdown, I think we needed more of that meaty, I need lots of content. So looking back at the TV shows that I've watched, it's like, oh, there's some really good ones to talk about. But um, we'll get to that later. Um, I think there's two things that you and I have both watched this week, one of which mm. is a chain movie, which we might get to in the first hour of this week for a change. <gasps> um but the other one, and I thought it might be an interesting place to start, was the, the new James Gunn DC HBO mm. Max, if you're in America, show, yeah. um, Peacemaker. Peacemaker. So this is a spin-off of the James Gunn Suicide Squad film that came out mm-hmm. last year. Mm-hmm. Um, I recall, I know I really liked it. I think you did as well. Yeah. Um, and I think we were both, actually, I think you mentioned it last week during your Fast 9 
review how pleasantly surprised we all were by um, John Cena's performance in in that film. And probably most of the films we see him in, really, he's actually got a reasonably good sense of comic timing. Yeah. Uh, He's not afraid to take the piss out of himself. Um, And, yes, in case you are watching and you're wondering, George is drinking out of a Viking horn. There (laughs) is a story, but I'm not going to bore you with it, other than to say... Yes, he does fully intend on invading Britain later, um, after dinner, though. Yeah, Not after <laughs> Got to have my supper. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I think we're all a bit surprised when it comes to, you know, pro wrestlers becoming actors. It's becoming a real thing now. We've got uh, Dwayne Johnson, of course, Dave yep. Batista's probably gone the more serious route. You know, he was in June, he was in Blade Runner, in addition, Definitely. of course, to, to Drax. But um, mm-hmm. John Cena, I think he realises which side his bread's buttered on. Mm. And he does comedy and action pretty well, mm. uh, apart from Fast Nine, apparently. But um, so this is a, I guess you would say a black comedy kind of action show. Definitely, I would say this is probably the closest return to James Gunn Super era that we have seen since Super. It is much much darker than any of his other offerings that have been. Um, in Hollywood to date, for obvious reasons, he's been doing a lot more of the sort of like Disney umbrella stuff. And DC, whilst they do definitely like to be a little bit more edgy, they still are very mainstream. This straight off the bat is gritty, and it feels almost like um, like a B movie. It, it definitely follows on from the Suicide Squad, but it takes that next step or two along the we're going to fuck with your expectations kind of thing. Um, but that said, only if you have the wrong kind of expectations. If you are familiar with James Gunn's work to date, as you mentioned, Super, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. where he started doing um, trauma films, yes. or yes. sort of Slither, like I think might have been his first feature. Um, I think so. Um, he's not afraid of a bit of blood and gore. The difference yeah. is the, the budget is higher now, so the yeah. blood and gore looks better than he did when he was doing trauma films like Tromeo and Juliet. Oh, yeah, he worked on that one. That's a thing. That really exists. I've seen it. Um, so if, seen it. Un- if you haven't seen Suicide Squad and you're curious about this, first things first, my strongest recommendation would be to see Suicide Squad before you start this series. It's mm-hmm. going to make a lot more sense to you. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to give a lot more of a shit about the characters. And this film, even the first five minutes, ten minutes, is going to spoil the end of Suicide Squad for you with Mm -hmm. what happened. So um, that's going to make it a lot less fun to see Suicide Squad after seeing Mm. Peacemaker. So strongest possible recommendation to see Suicide Squad. Plus, it's fucking awesome. I think, yeah, it was fucking awesome. Um, But anyway, so Peacemaker is played by John Cena. He has been raised by his father to be... The ultimate killing machine's father's a soldier or something. Mm-hmm. I think I recall. Played by the brilliant Robert Patrick. Robert Patrick. Oh. And uh, he's been ranked, taught to kill with every conceivable type of weapon from, yes. you know, from knee high to a grasshopper. So now he's like the ultimate kind of non enhanced super soldier, shall we mm-hmm. say. Uh, he is what happens, happens in Suicide Squad, and I'm not going to spoil that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I know it came out six months ago, but I really want people to see it. Um, yes. it um, 
he uh, ends up uh, surviving the events, I guess as a spoiler here. This is set after the events of Suicide Squad. He survived yep. the events of that film and finds himself uh, waking up in hospital after the, the uh, finale of that film, only to mm-hmm. be released. And instead of going back to jail where he starts in, in Suicide Squad, he goes back to, to I guess, his hometown and his trailer, mm-hmm. um, uh, whereupon he's uh, hit upon by the same people behind... Uh, the, the goings on in Suicide Squad. I forget the actual agency's name. Um, uh, shit. Um, Viola Davis's agency. Amanda Walker. <sighs> anyway, so the, the, yeah. people who, the, the people who, the, in the end, the people who took him out of jail and put him into the Suicide Squad uh, require him to continue working for them in order to remain out of jail. Um, there's been a new command force or a new task force created which he'll be part of some mm-hmm. of the people in that task force were in suicide squad and were involved in some of the more important events of that film's conclusion and are being punished as a result of those events and uh their punishment is to work with peacemaker which gives you something of an idea about his character task uh, but, x so task x yes <laughs> Uh, after making a miraculous recovery, Peacemaker returns home and he discover that his freedom comes at a price. That price mm-hmm. is now being going to be utilised as an assassin to mm-hmm. kill people who Task Force X don't want to be alive anymore. And the the only real uh, the the project code name that they have for this is Project Butterfly, and it's quite a nice little wink and nod. Um, to the absurdity of some of these project names, as it was like Project Starfish was one of the MacGuffins that they're talking about in the Suicide Squad movie, and he just explains that, and it's like, okay, what am I? What are you? You're not very inventive with your project naming. What's it going to be? Um, and they don't really go into it at all um, in the first episode. I haven't watched the second one yet, um, but it's a good kind of natural feed in for it and it's it's surprisingly humbling opening it's it hits the ground running and it still has that same feel and attitude that the suicide squad had but um through the lens of um peacemaker it's a little sadder than kind of what I was anticipating. It's almost, there's almost a touch of kind of the the feel that you get in some of the post-Vietnam wars of the soldiers coming back and how society treats, treated them differently a little bit. Um, there's almost an element of that. It's mixed in with the fact that he's been in prison for all this time and life has moved on and people have just forgotten him. And there's this sadness to his return in spite of, what you know about this character is so like okay i'm i'm feeling oddly conflicted here because john cena like as like i've said in the past he's very good at elicit eliciting an emotion from you and that's part of what was important about him during his wwe run he was the face of wwe for song and he was a hated guy he was bipolar in the audience people either loved him or just detested him and he was good at playing both those sides and so in this role he's kind of perfect for it because he is unabashedly a psychopath 
but he's endearing in his it's almost like childlike innocence with that and great line in suicide squad he goes i adore peace and i don't care how many men women and children i have to kill to achieve it yes um, which is actually a, a really line. beautiful um summation of the you know twisted you know, almost the, like the evil captain america in in Captain yeah. America with a soldier TV show earlier last year. Mm. Um, but they didn't do it anywhere near as eloquently. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it it just really I wish I was kind of stunned by what the first episode served up in the tone and the style that it was in. It it's got that kind of um planet terror slash ground grindhouse sort of feel to it a little bit like the suicide squad had that kind of rough around the edges kind of feel but it was designed to be that way and like i said the 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 immediate level of emotion that comes through from it um i wasn't expecting that i was expecting something a bit more straight-laced comedy but i'm really liking it it's you're right um in a way i kind of feel like this will we'll see i mean i've only seen episode one as well mm. there are three out there at the moment um so. we'll see well i think it's a i don't know how many episodes there are probably what eight or nine something like that um but like i think the show i have a feeling will actually prove what you and i have been saying is the strength of having your own tv channel mm. is you choose how to tell your story mm-hmm. and you know uh for some reason uh, for about eight episodes, by the way, uh, James Gunn and, and Cena just seem to have clicked on this character and decided to do this spinoff. Um, mm. But they've got now eight hours, essentially, probably a bit less, you know, seven, eight hours, I don't know how many episodes is, to tell a very interesting story about this character. So episodes are about 45 minutes long. So, yeah, you know, seven hours or so to tell uh, a story about this character. Mm. Obviously, in the movie, you're right, he just comes across as a a cocky, you know, uh, psychopath um, mm. who, you know, is something of an antagonist and a protagonist at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's not necessarily the most likable character of the bunch in that mm. film, but that's kind of what he had to be in that film. And mm. You've got 90 minutes, two hours to tell a story. Um, whereas now we've got seven and a half, eight hours. We can really deep dive into the, the psychology of a character like that. And, yeah. and you're right. I mean, he is kind of an arsehole. Uh, he's obnoxious. He's sexist. He's racist, which is, I, I think racism has been funnier for a particularly long time. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the conversation between uh, John Cena and the, um, and the janitor Between the hospital. Yeah. Um, it's, but we, we, that's all he's all these horrible things. But then James Gunn is actually going, okay, well, but why is he like that? Mm. Um, and that's what we don't get on a lot of um, villain, those sort of two-dimensional villains, especially the ones we see Marvel use so often. You know, like, okay, in his first episode, we meet his dad. His dad's a prick who yep. hates him and puts him down and says, you're a Nancy boy. He just survived having a building fall on him at the end of a lot of the film. And yep. he's, he's a Nancy boy, you know, and he's always yep. thinking his dad's obviously for a couple of months an absolutely wretched racist himself. Yeah. Um, so when you sort of see that and you go, well, this is where he's come from, mm-hmm. you know, um, and you're right, it's an unusually poignant um, sort of kicking off for a series that we expected to be 
hilarious and violent. Mm. Um, maybe exciting, but we didn't expect it to be kind of moving and thought-provoking. Mm. Um, and I think that's so far looking what's going to elevate this. That and, sorry, the last element, the fucking soundtrack are the elements that are going to escalate, ele- elevate this, sorry, beyond at least as far as first episode one is gone. It mm. looks like it's going to elevate it well and truly above pretty much everything uh, Disney did with the Marvel uh, TV shows last year. Yeah, I, I would say it's it certainly hit the ground stronger than any of the other first episodes of those ones. Um, I think one of the big telling points for me is the level of intelligence of storytelling that is going into the dissection of this character and just those little tiny beats of him like seeing um, uh, one of his teammates on the street and him just kind of kind of weighing it up of, okay, am I going to be a bit stalkery? Am I just going to drive on? Just those little moments of him just playing that thought out and just see you, you get these visual identifiers of him weighing it up and just going, okay, I'm lonely. I want company. And so that's what I need. It's not, he doesn't look at it as, as thinking that's stalkery behavior. It's, there's justification to his thought process, which I is... think he's. I think he's basically playing this character as mm. as a as a giant man child. He yeah. is a ten year old boy, um, yeah. Because of the way he was raised, he's never had that kind of a level of emotional maturity to or to learn the kind of empathy necessary to think about how his yeah. actions uh, make the people around him mm. feel. He's actually he's way of acting towards others is purely transactional i want sex hence i will proposition you in a bar for sex not thinking for a second about how that's going to make him seem or Mm. you know how that will look to to his propositioning and that's uh, another telling difference to the times where they have had these good villains in mcu um but they've never kind of gone into why they are like that like they tried doing it a little bit with loki but then it ended up just getting lost and they just kind of forgot about it whereas this certainly seems so far to be a much more um analytical breakdown of this character as to why justifications for his past reasons and maybe some form of redemption or a solidifying of his ethos and um ideology to a point where it's like yeah no this is who i am i am happy with this now you deal with it um and it it's a level of intelligence that james gunn has always shown in how he approaches things like for me one of the best things about guardians of the galaxy 2 was the the father-son relationship triangle between um star lord ego and yondu and how that all played out and again it was a little bit of man child syndrome for star lord um but it still had that emotional beat and they've already kind of hit that beat of emotion in a very complex interesting character straight off the bat that it's got me invested for sure I think maybe people are thinking, well, this sounds a bit wanky for me. You know, this is a think piece or something. No, no. no. Is, is, is it still exactly what you think it is? Yeah. It's just that 
end this as well. Um, if you it, it's it's still type of thing of you can absolutely enjoy this on a surface level, but at the same time, when you look at it, you suddenly go, "Oh, there's much more adult fair in Wally and um, any of the classic Pixar movies that you can you can investigate deeper into it." And I just really latched onto that deeper stuff. And I'll I'll say this as well: the action sequence um, in this at the end of episode one was great it played a little bit like an, an 80s action movie with arnold schwarzenegger commando style in the apartment so like just throwing each other around like rag dolls and the the absurdity of it it felt like an 80s or early 90s action movie but it still absolutely fit with the rest of the way that we've been presented with the world of peacemaker fantastic I, i'm very curious to find out what that was all about because it certainly didn't mm -hmm. play out the way one expected um, mm -hmm. and, and just another shout out because I just touched on it before. Mm. James Gunn is responsible for the soundtrack mm -hmm. to this film. I mm -hmm. believe he's the music director of or what do you want to call it? He's chosen all of it, and it's a brilliant selection of 80s hair metal. Mm -hmm. Um, which I know I've seen him talk about it on Twitter before. I know he's a bit of a fan of that kind of thing. Um, mm. and I found myself while I was watching it actually googling some of the bands that were being mentioned. Uh, it's a scene where, where Peacemaker flips through someone's record collection. And I'm like, yeah. oh, I, I've never heard of any of these bands before. Like, uh, and I'm, I, I was, I'm a little older than you. I, I remember the tail end of the hair metal thing. I, <laughs> the first record I ever wanted to buy was um, Open Up and Say Ah by Poison. And my parents wouldn't let me because they were convinced they were satanic. And <laughs> uh, like the idea of Poison being satanic is, is kind of hilarious. So I was thinking about <laughs> girls and cars and stuff like that. But, you know. It was the eighties. That's what we did. Um, so I remember, I remember, you know, Motley Crue and Poison and that kind of thing. And I quite liked some of those bands at the time. Um, mm. But these ones were usually these were deep cuts. Like, yeah, these were some some serious hair metal aficionado stuff. It's it's kind of the eighties um, variation of Tarantino's seventies obsession, and I love that. Because these guys just have this deep well of I know and love this music, and they incorporate it into these modern uh, modern media so well that it's like it's the one of the reasons why I love so much um, the 70s and 80s stuff is because of Tarantino having pulled it and brought it in. So like, oh, in, in this is an introduction to some of the best fucking music ever. <laughs> this is great, and I'm loving the music. The, the opening dance routine of the title credits for Peacemaker, that song is awesome. I found myself thinking, this is actually a kind of an overlooked and forgotten genre of music in a way. Um, it's, it's not one that gets a lot of love anymore. Like, you know, there's no been, not been a real revival of that style of music. You know, you, you had 80s synth pop came back in the late 90s. You know, a lot of 80s music is held in very high regard now by hipsters. You know, the whole Toto thing came back. But I don't, there's not a lot of, there's not, not a lot of love for that genre of hair metal. But the closest back. that I can kind of think of is The Darkness. And that was, what, 15 years ago? The Darkness were be... part of that. And, and I remember actually being quite a fan of theirs. And they were kind of unique in that sense that they really did have that, you know, the, the tight spandex jumpsuits. And yeah. Electric guitars and the over the top film clips and stuff like that, mm -hmm. and you were never quite sure whether it was a piss take or whether they were legit, right? Um, <laughs> you're right. The darkness were the Christmas song. 
Um, but they were kind of alone in that sense. They came and they mm-hmm. went, and you're right, that would have been the mid 2000, 2005, 2006. Yeah. So that's yeah. a long time ago now. Um, and I mean, I'm, yeah, it is what it is. Like, you know, so maybe some genres of music don't need to be revived. They should just be left where they are. And we can, (laughs) you know, we can just quickly glance back and go, yeah, okay, look, new metal. It seemed cool at the time, but we don't need that back. Um, (laughs) But, um, you know, that said, it suits the character particularly well. Yeah. Um, uh, For anybody, that car he's got, a sidekick is an eagle called Eagly, um, which is brilliant. I don't know if that's in the comic books. If not, it's genius. Um, Regardless, it's brilliantly played. It, it also is it, it's, it's subtly meta and references its place in the universe. Like, you know, is it, he's having an argument with someone about Aquaman having sex with fish and stuff like that. And you're not a superhero. <laughs> Batman's a superhero. Um, yeah. You know, and you're like, okay, cool. I like that they're setting it up that he exists in this universe. Does that yes. mean it's part of a DCEU? Probably not. Who knows? No, I don't think even the the people working on DC movies right now know if there's actually a DCEU. <laughs> I think it's just a nebulous thing that you can kind of go, ah, oh, if you want to use that character, sure, it's DCEU. You want to get that character? Shazam referenced Superman, of course. So, yep. Mm, yep. Um, come on, guys, you make up your mind. Nah, they're not going to do it. Uh, either way, I, I've got. I mean, I'm looking forward to watching the next couple of episodes. I probably would have absolutely um, binged them, but there's been some other things on my plate, which you'll hear about later on. But it's mm-hmm. a really nice introduction. Um, yeah. I think it just goes to show, right? But I think Disney made a massive mistake, massive mistake in firing him from Guardians Three. Um, I mean, they're going to get it anyway, but they're getting it late. Yeah, um, it's it was a fantastic opportunity for DC and 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 James Gunn. It worked out brilliantly for him because I'm DC. I don't know. Obviously, I wasn't there, but it looks like they've kind of come to him and gone, "You can do whatever you fucking want." I don't yeah. know if they came and said we want to do Suicide Squad again, or they said, "Here's our here's our here's the book. Pick one. What would um, you like?" And, and he's kind of got had had his pick. To go, I'm sure they and didn't say we'd like to do that. The thing that is very um, important to remember for James Gunn in particular, when I was thinking about this the other day, um, the importance of having people who know how to use their medium. And I think a a culprit of over self flagellation, maybe, is Chris Nolan, where his movies are just getting longer and longer and longer. And the the concepts are cool, but he's not actually delivering a full story. He's not, there's, there's one or two things that just don't quite fit right with it. Um, James Gunn has always just from the very beginning, he's worked on a minimal budget. He's worked fast and efficient. You think about the time that the suicide squad movie finished to this coming out. It's maybe 18 months. If you extend it far and he's got the whole season done eight episodes, Written, directed, edited, music scored, done. Everything. And that's fucking impressive. He knows how to work quick. He knows how to keep the budget low. This guy is a dream for DC that needed a win and just went, here you go. Do what you want. Here's 200 million. That's that's a low budget for us. Do what you want with that. He did. 
they loved it people loved it audience really liked it and it was enough to him for them to go yeah keep going see see what you do on hbo we need content for our channel do it i don't know if i mean like i think this has been a bigger chance for him rather in the sense that he just kind of got i don't know again i don't know i kind of i kind of like to think he came in and said i'll do it but i'll do it my way that means an r rating Mm. Um, yeah, the US R rating, and I want I don't want to be doing another, another Disney film here, which is done twice mm. now. But yeah, I, I don't know how well it worked out for um DC in the sense of or Warner Brothers mm. in the sense that, like, I think Suicide Squad was kind of a flop at the box office. I know I think maybe it came out on HBO Max at the same time, they're mm. always hard to mm. kind of square that circle. Then it grossed 167 against a $185 million budget. Despite mm. the fact it's a fucking great movie, mm. um, I think, you know, the, the best thing DC's done to date. Um, but I, I mean, again, only they know whether the, the numbers stack up by the number of people who watched an HBO. I think the, the, the win for DC Warner Brothers on this side is that the audience there is a there is a rabid audience for the love of this for the love of james gunn so they have kind of got a bit of a gift in the hand of audience favor where so many of their previous movies with the dceu have been lukewarm at best there's like oh there's some good bits in there there was never strong defenders one way or another really um Everyone was kind of middling. No one, no, no there's no massive fan bases. Like, no, Man of Steel is the best fucking Superman movie of all time. Oh, contraire. Oh, contraire. There are a lot of Snyder, Snyder fans out there. They got their fucking extended edition, which wasn't terrible, but there are a lot of fans of those Snyder Superman movies. They're, they're out there. That's fair, but it's not as big as these, or certainly not as... The, the Snyder stuff is, it's really hard to boil down where that actually comes from. Um, but then you think of the Wonder Womans, you think of the stuff going on with Batman and Ben Affleck's involvement with it, and the Joss Whedon stuff and all of that stuff. There's, there's a lot of baggage around every project. There. The, um, the, the Suicide Squad came in and it had that opportunity of, but DC came in and plucked James Gunn. James Gunn was so good. He did two fantastic Guardians of the Galaxy. There was this hubbub about um, stuff on Twitter from years ago, but they've moved on. They've taken this opportunity, and they just kept that ball rolling, and now they've got um, uh, Black Adam coming out on the riding the crest of the, the rock wave that seems to be trying to engulf everything, and... There's the love for Michael Keaton coming back as Batman for the Flashpoint movie. They are, it's worked out rather nicely for them to just push this kind of good vibes about their movies rather than, oh shit, they've had so many production problems and directors exiting and coming back. And for, for the first time in the DCEU history, it feels like, these movies are just being created by people that love them and they're just making their babies. I would, I would hope it's that good. I mean, like we'll see with Black Adam that's directed being directed by a complete hack. Um, so you know, I, I'll believe it when I see it. But I'm I'm glad this one worked out. Maybe mm. they should have given him more money and said, "Can you be our new Zack Snyder daddy?" And just be <laughs> our Kevin Foggy. Our what was the guy's name? Jeff Johns. Who was gonna be? Who was yeah. the 
the the, the overview of the whole thing. He just had no idea what he was doing, apparently. Um, maybe that would have worked. Jeff maybe Jeff Jones is in the comics industry. He's it's a different medium. Poor guy. He was probably having a mental breakdown straight away. I don't, was Kevin Feige from the comics industry? He wasn't, I don't think. No, but that, that's what I'm saying. Jeff Johns came from the comics industry. I came from, sorry. Um, yeah. Well, he probably had a head start that others didn't. Maybe yeah, if the maybe. film industry wasn't for him. But um, uh, I'm, And if nothing else, also props to James Gunn because he's super yeah. active on Twitter and he's always answering fans. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and I dig that about him. He's not out there like some people like Ryan Johnson and uh, What's-Her-Face, the, the, when he directed Charlie's Angels, uh, dissing people on, on Twitter going, oh, if you don't like my movie, you're a sexist or whatever, <laughs> just being abusing their fans. Um, not to say the fans don't deserve it sometimes, but, you know, I like how James engages with his audience. It's nice. Yeah. Um, we're talking superheroes. Can mm-hmm. I move sideways for a second? Have you had a chance to see the trailer for Moon Knight? Yes, I did. Uh, I am not very familiar with Moon Knight, but I've heard people say he's a bit like what Batman would be if Batman had disassociative disorder. He's sort of a yeah. That's Batman. been my understanding of it as well, and I'm I'm curious with this. I don't really know anything about Moon Knight. I love Oscar Isaac as an actor, so I'm in. I trust him. I don't know anything about the production team. I don't know who's being the head honcho of this, who's created it or anything like that. The trailer looks interesting. It looks a bit darker and more suspect than um, than a lot of the other stuff that we've seen come through Disney Marvel, um, which has got me curious. So, yeah, I'm I'm keen to see what they say. It's another, it's an interesting one. Like we don't know anything about the character, but I think hmm. the well, it's obviously somebody does. Like if you've read hmm. the comic books, he's been around since the mid seventies. Yeah. Um, the involvement of someone as prominent as Oscar Isaac mm-hmm. is super super impressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, looping in uh, Ethan Hawke as yeah. the villain, I assume, um, yes. is an interesting choice going against type. For, for Ethan Hawke, you don't see him playing a villain terribly often. Um, yeah, I'm, I was curious about it. I'm like, it. It looks different to anything else we've seen on Disney Plus today. Mm, there um, is one red flag. Yes. It seems to be set in England, and pretty much any time movies are set in England and they are more Americanized, they usually aren't that good. Think Thor The Dark World. Think V for Vendetta. Big parts of Endgame were set in England, though. Parts of uh, Captain America Winter Soldier were shot over there, I think. That was Scotland. Scotland. All <laughs> part of England anyway, isn't it? It's all the same. <laughs> I know a few Scottish people that will be right. Oh, uh, they're too pussy to vote themselves out of the union, then they earned it. Um, <laughs> should we move? So- I, mean, I, I think not- we talked about Ethan Hawke. Should we just slide on the Ethan Hawke bandwagon or you got anything else you'd like to say first? I was just going to quickly ask, have you, um, aside from today's episode, have you watched um, any more of Book of Boba Fett? I haven't watched today's episode yet, no. No. Okay. I watched it alone we'll, from last we'll week. We'll save that for next week then, yeah. yeah. Cool. 
All right, yeah, let's let's go on to chain movie of the week. I just that even Hawk Link was just too juicy to leave alone. No, and now we're fine. in superhero section. Very, very. Um, I picked this one last week. So uh, the previous week we had um, Titan AE, I think it was, right? Mm-hmm. And yes. I chose to follow somebody, uh, Janine Garofalo, <laughs> that's right. Yes. Janine Garofalo to uh, Reality Bites. Now, it was a tight call between this and Mystery Men for me. I went with the one that had the higher IMDb rating. For some reason, this has a 6.6 and Mystery Man has a 6.1, um, which is disappointing because I think Mystery Man is a very funny, funny movie for me. But anyway, mm-hmm. I've seen both of them, but I hadn't seen this one in a long time. Mm-hmm. Reality Bites was released in 1994. It was directed by Ben Stiller, of all people. His yep. first directorial feature, written by Helen Childress. She was 19. When she wrote this, I guess this is her first screenplay. Okay. Um, she has done Sweet Fuck All since then. Mm-hmm. I hope she got paid well. Um, <laughs> a plot revolves around a documentary filmmaker and her fellow Generation X graduates face life after college looking for work and love in Houston. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Winona Ryder. We have Ethan Hawke. We mentioned she plays Leilani. Mm-hmm. Leilana. Um, uh even Hawk plays Troy Dyer, Janine Garofalo as Vicky, Steve Zahn as Sammy, Ben Stiller as Michael, uh, you, you know, Renee Zellweger's first ever feature credit uh, in her career, and she has no lines. She's in one scene. Um, That's right. Kissing, kissing uh, Ethan Hawke goodbye. Um, <sighs> you might notice a couple other fam- familiar faces of sort of popular yes. sort of um, – you know, character players, Swoozy Kurtz, you'll recognize. Look her up, you'll know who she is. Joe yep. Don Baker, he's in here Don as well. Baker, yeah. Um, John Mahoney. Yeah. For people for Fraser. Good morning. Um, <laughs> you'll, you'll recognize some of the familiar um, character roles in here. Um, yes. This is um, this is kind of a, a, a Gen X or a May. I don't, are you Gen X? You're a millennial, aren't you, really? I'm a Gen X millennial. What year were you born? 83. I'm a millennial. So you're right on the cusp there, but I I think you might be, um, you might be, um, you might fall into the the millennial bucket, which is not one you want to fall into. Shut up. Stop it. I am in a tight mini bracket of two years where we are lost. We are not part of any generation. We are the genuine lost generation because we don't want to associate with any of them. <laughs> uh, typically, people born between 81 and 86, according to Wikipedia. So I'm going to go up. But anyway, um, you're right on the cusp. You're unfortunately, it's an unfortunate little uh, cusp to be on. This was, a, I don't know if you remember this film when it came out, um, or you remember this, more probably what I remember is the Lisa Loeb song that came out along with this film, Stay by Lisa Loeb and Nine Tails. Oh, shit. Yeah, that's right. That played um, over the credits at the end of the film. It's not even in the film. Um, but this is probably the most, was really actually one of the, it was a really huge hit song. And mm. I think it was almost really pushed the film into a lot of people's consciousness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but I think it also, it's, we've, we've talked a little bit about how these days, how rare a coming of age film is for mm. this generation. Um uh, I, yeah, the, the what we call new Zeds or even millennials. You know, millennials kind of had their moment, but um, it's a rare thing to see these days. Is the coming of age film, and if you do see one, 
it tends to be more like something like licorice pizza, which seems yeah. to be about people growing up in the seventies, um, which is probably, you know, the late boomer period. Um, uh, there certainly weren't, I don't think a hell of a lot of generation X coming of age films. Uh, I think this is one of them. And along with a film like singles might be another one. Uh, yes. Slackers, the Richard Linklater film. Yeah. Uh, are the only ones that I can think of off the top of my head. If you can think of one, to get in touch with us and let us know your what we're missing here. But I think this is probably the most popular and I guess the most iconic coming mm. of age film. This is the stand by me for Generation X. Yeah, kind of. Um, I think a side note why there's so few of them is partly because it was also the start of the real tech boom industry of like the possibility of, oh, what could the the internet look like? What What is this idea of being able to get stuff off the net? It was a burgeoning idea. So a, a lot of those kind of coming-of-age movies ended up becoming kind of tarred with that tech brush kind of thing. It's like I think of a little bit of Hackers. It's like, okay, yeah. that's kind of a coming-of-age movie, but not really. It's all just completely whitewashed with this tech baloney <laughs> yeah, know, this is probably actually on in the world yeah, we, we should try and get hackers into the mix somewhere that's a oh that's a that has i bet that's aged beautifully um <laughs> like like uh angelina shelley's haircut but interestingly i watched this with um with michelle on on last friday night and this was actually a film that she remembers very fondly is something that she's watched a lot um okay. back in the days of vhs we've talked <laughs> about that where you had you had six VHS tapes in the house. Yes. And you learned to love those films because um, <laughs> it was hard to find. You, you know, they're expensive and not easy to get. Um, so, it, and it's interesting. I feel like a lot of people I've spoken to about this film this week actually have a very similar relationship with it. And there's a sense of people who were my age, you know, maybe even a couple of years either way, kind of mm -hmm. had this deep love affair with this film in the sense it's a, it's a pretty standard sort of love story, real love triangle story. Mm. Um, that you would probably find in, in many different eras. But this one is the one that has a, a very shiny, or not so shiny, because it's a Gen X coat of paint. So it would be a very grungy uh, mm. coat of Gen X paint over the top of it. There's two, yeah. two stars who are just, you know, glowing in this film. You know, like it's, it's Winona Ryder and Ethan Hawke at the absolute peak of their youth, beauty, and power. Mm -hmm. like um, never have they been more just doesn't matter how much dirt and grime and three years of drugs on them or anything like that they have you look at them and you just go damn they like Ethan Hawke is ridiculously beautiful in this film yeah yeah um I don't know that Ethan's age particularly well um it's not a bit from like the you see Toby night, no you see Tobey Maguire in the new Spider-Man film you're like oh <laughs> Oh, you're a good-looking young fella. What happened there? Um, you know, uh, um, but look, he's still got a career. Obviously, he's going to be in Moon Knight, like we said. But um, goodness, he was young and beautiful in this, and they worked together so very well. Yeah. So a bit of a plot here. Winona Ryder is Leilana is uh, the, the valedictorian of her college class. They've just started a film uh, it begins with them graduating college and her giving a big anti-corporate speech, you know, the, the Gen X call to war of what mm -hmm. comes next. I don't know. 
um, which, is, which is a beautiful Gen X moment. But then they sort of enter this work, this world where they have to start finding jobs and um, perhaps young people may not remember there was a bit of a recession at the start of the 90s. I don't know if it extended as far as 94. I can't remember, but things were tough there for a little while. And yeah. so they struggled to actually, you know, enter the real world, if you will, and find their, find a job that she feels is worthy of her. She lives with her friend Vicky, played by Janine Garofalo, who mm-hmm. is kind of a little bit more accepting of her station in life in the sense that she works at The Gap, um, mm-hmm. which is a clothing store um, in the United States uh, as a manager, and kind of accepts that that's a reasonable station in life for her at this point in time. It doesn't quite have yeah. the overwhelming ambition of um, Leilana. Um, yeah. Troy is their slacker friend who just sort of hangs out and sits around and watches TV and smokes weed. It's I knew different. a lot of guys like Troy back in the day, super fucking smart, yeah. zero drive or direction in life. Yeah. Um, um, he sits around reading poetry and being beautiful. Yeah, that's, that's it. He, he is... I think everyone knew someone like that who was just like, oh, he's he's the philosopher of our group. He can he can spout these amazing diatribes and quote from all these uh, classical books, but modern modern culture as well. And isn't he fabulous and just so carefree? And everyone wanted to be him or do him, <laughs> <laughs> or both. Por qué no los dos? Um, Steve Zane is, I guess, the fourth member of their little quartet. Uh, he doesn't get a lot of screen time. He works as a bartender, I think, uh, at the bar that even Hawk's band plays at quite a bit. Um, mm. who have I can't remember his band's name, but they're they're awful. Uh, they have an awful name. Um, and they are an awful band. Uh, interestingly, here, Steve Zahn's Sammy is actually a, a, is gay. Um, and we were having a conversation after this film and sort of going. This probably would have been a little bit edgy back in 1994, having one of your main characters in a coming-of-age film like this be openly gay. Yeah. Um, the other... Uh, he does, unfortunately, they don't really go down that rabbit hole a lot. There is a scene where he comes out uh, to his mother and gets sort of has to leave the house to let her cool down after um, coming out to her. And I think that would be an interesting um, thing for younger audiences to see happening in this film. Because I just feel like, well, if nothing else, that has moved a little bit in the subsequent 25 years where I would hope, at least in most parts of a civilized world, apart from the South and the United States, um, that would be a significantly less stressful or important or scary thing to do. Not not scary, but less scary. Yeah, I I agree with that. I think that... um... I definitely think out of everything that is presented in this movie, that is arguably the one that Needle has moved the most because there is like there's the the very kind of almost tropey sequence after um, Winona Ryder's character gets fired and her going around to all the different job types and just door slammed in various different ways and things like that and it's like. Yeah, that hasn't really changed for for younger people fresh out of college and uni. It's like, oh, you're too experienced. You're not experienced enough. And it's all the same stuff. And it's still any job you go into. It's like, oh, I want five years of experience at the age, by the age of 18. Thank you. <laughs> I think it's also, it, it, it's interesting also that like um, 
when you I think it's happened to me a little bit is when you exit uni with a with a degree, even though mm. yeah, my degree was in something incredibly useful like politics and history. I oh, should have been. People used to ask me, "What do you want to do with that degree?" And I'd say, "Do you want fries of that?" Um, <laughs> um, I, I stand by that. Um, but uh, you do something to you know, you've got this built up in your head. I have a degree, and you sort of walk out into the wider world expecting that to open some doors for you, only to find nobody gives a shit about your degree. I mean, at least in my field. I mean, maybe if you have a you know, degree in nursing or something, but somewhat in demand right now. Um, you, 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 that might be a slightly different experience, but I think for, for a lot of people, um, you kind of have that moment where you're like, Hey, she's the valedictorian of her class. She's been telling people have been telling her for all these years about how great she is mm. only to walk into the real world and go, it's a pretty cold and rough and tumble place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, beyond that, I remember this movie because it was one of the movies that we were told to study for creative writing and when I was at college and then for acting when I went to acting school. And I don't think that is actually a good thing because the story is kind of hackneyed. The performances elevate it above what the material is actually serving up. Um, Winona Ryder and Ethan Hawke have got fantastic chemistry. Um, Ben Stiller was good in it and he directed it pretty well, but it definitely feels like a first movie um, kind of testing the waters, getting, getting his feet wet. Um, there was certainly not the confidence of direction that he developed and with uh, his, with his own characters, his, like his more mature stuff. Like for me, one of his favorite, my favorite ones of his is uh, the cable guy brilliant satire that balanced the absurdity with that part like i was talking about in uh, peacemaker where jim carrey's character is really a damaged just wants to be loved kind of character but he goes about it in so, so repeatedly wrong ways that are comical and tragic at the same time there's not that level of maturity on display with the control of the performances or control of the script in this um, it does feel a little bit cliche, though. As I sort of said, it's yeah. a pretty stock mm. love triangle story, but with a Gen X coat of paint on top of it. Mm. Um, and as you sort of noted, some pretty engaging stars um, and a great soundtrack. Um, the My yeah. Sharona scene, I think, was possibly the most memorable scene in the film. Yeah. Also, apparently, uh, was a, a song that Quentin Tarantino wanted to use in one of his films, but had um. to find something else. Um, because uh, these guys got in there first, um, mm -hmm. which is, you know, he's probably never forgiven. us. why Ben Stiller's never been in the Tarantino film. <laughs> Would have made a great choice as the Bear Jew, um, I think, but, you know, we'll, we will never know now. That's a weird alternative reality. Yeah. <laughs> At one point in time, mm -hmm. I believe that was supposed to be um, Adam Sandler. Oh, yeah, I remember that rumour. Yeah. See, that would have worked. That would have that would have been so fitting for him as well. He would have done that very well. But anyway, that's another chapter in an alternate universe, you know. Yes. What if? Um, episode of What <laughs> If. Um, uh, but, yeah, I, I don't think – I'm not sure you'd say it's hackneys. It's, like I said, it's a, it's, it's a little bit cliched if you look at it. Uh, it's a fairly by-the-numbers sort of film in the terms of yeah. the type of story. But – 
I think there's some elements in there, like I said, the the adding in the coming of age element in here about that mm. uh, discovery about what life's like in the real world, and you know the the fact that um you know it's not as light light and fluffy as mm. you've been led to believe is a is a hard lesson that a lot of people have to learn when they head out of university and hit the real world, and I think that's an interesting little element in here. I enjoy the the Ethan Hawke character quite a bit. He almost reminds me of someone who might belong in a Kevin Smith film. Um, I yeah. always think of Kevin. I think I read it somewhere that Kevin Smith made films about um, brainy people in brainless jobs. Yeah, uh, and I think, like you said, we all knew someone like that—that that philosopher who was, you know, with a well, one fifty IQ who was serving at a petrol station or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, who just had no ambition in life or hadn't decided but they wanted to use that for anything useful at that point in time. They were quite content sitting around smoking bongs. Yeah. Um, and I liked seeing that on the screen because while I can um, absolutely lay no claim to having been that person myself, but like I said, I knew a few of these guys and it, it, I'm not sure I've seen it represented quite so accurately hmm. um, before. I will say the other thing that I feel like it represents very well is the the feeling of um, abandonment um, the all of the characters, they go through these moments where they try and reach out for people for support, but their, their backs have been turned. Um, particularly Winona Ryder's parents, she reaches out like, I'm trying to find a job. I can't find anything. And they just are like, Oh, stick to it. You'll be fine. Bye-bye. Off you go. Like, yeah, they were just like, okay, you're 18, poof, out the door, bye. I think they kind of had a point there, though, really. Yeah. You know, um, they're like, she's like, I can't find anything in my field. Mm. Um, and that, that that does kick off a moment where she slums it a little bit and starts looking for jobs in fast food. Mm. Uh, this is after offending Vicky by turning down her offer to get her a job at the Gap. She says, I'm not working at the fucking Gap, I think, or something like that. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think... That, that, again, that's an interesting angle. I think, again, uh, if you have a particularly specific or what you feel is an important degree, then that's probably a trap one could fall into. And I remember that was something that you used to hear about a lot in the 90s. It was a common criticism from boomers that, you know, I mean, and you hear it today, you hear it again about Gen Ys, and I hear people say it about Gen Z now, they don't want to work. Um, and I just kind of feel like, no, 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 they want to work. They will work differently to how you work. And I think they yeah. see the inherent flaws in, in, in you know, the, the boomer generation's, you know, ideas about work. Um, but I remember you used to hear about that. People have these degrees and they won't just take any job. They will have to, you know, they mm. have to have a job that, that it meets what mm. they studied. And, like, I mean, I can see that to a degree. But, yeah, you know, I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for someone like that if you're, in a no, particular situation, either. like where you're desperate for money, take any job you can get. I've done it. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've done it all my life. <laughs> no one hires creative writers. It's like, all right, well done. You've got a degree in you can read and write your own language. Well done. <laughs> Good for you. I mean, I, I, I'm worthwhile. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a point of contention for me, having once upon a time shared a house with someone who absolutely would not do that. <laughs> they were, they it had to be the right job that they wanted to do at that moment in time. And they would take nothing less. And um, yeah. so More I guess I, if they can do it, but 
Yeah. Uh, I, I, I kind of I don't have a lot of respect for for Leilana's. I have a little. Parents were somewhat dismissive, and you're right. Some support. Yeah. They could have handled it better, but at the same time, she was being a little bit precious at that point. Oh yeah, yeah. She was. She was definitely princess mode. <laughs> um, it's yeah. It was. It was interesting going back and watching it again. Um, another highlight for me was watching seeing Evan Dando at the end playing the, the uh, character of Roy. I think in the uh, dramatized version um, of it. So Ben Stiller tr- b- tries to. Uh, by uh, Leilana's um, yes. documentary she's making about her friends and turned it into uh, an MTV show. I think there was in the big in the nineties called The Real Life or A Real World or something like yeah, that. Real world, yeah. Real World. And it's like that, trying to make it look a little bit like that. And, and, and she objected. So at the end of a film, he actually just takes the idea and makes it a, an actual um, soft scripted <laughs> drama. Uh, Evan Dando, for those who don't know, is um, the lead singer of the Lemonheads, um, yeah. who were a band in the 90s who I'm sure very, very few people remember unless you were there at the time. I do did actually bump into him physically once at a music festival. He's very big, and he was fucking wasted. Um, back in the days when we could touch people. Back in the days where you could go to music festivals. So anyway, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm glad we went back and had a look at it. Um I honestly kind of do have to say, though, I don't understand how this gets a 0.5 rating higher than Mystery Men, mm. which I think yeah. is a significantly better film than this. Agreed. Agreed. Um, but still, it was nice to go back to it after 20 years or so since the last time I watched it. It's like, all right, okay. It's, I think it overall, whilst being somewhat cliched and very washed with the gen x i think it still kind of stands up more or less like, i think um, that's due to the performances the performances yes i think of, i mean you know you stick anybody else in those two roles and this is an uber forgettable mm-hmm. mid-90s midday movie yeah but these two people who just work so well together and individually it elevates that and probably again um the soundtrack i guess because it's so memorable um yeah. and it has that lisa Loeb song which is you know, an incredible song that people will remember for a long time, I think, and it will be indelibly linked to this film. Yeah. So. You have the keys from here, my friend. I do, and I've got so many places that I could go, and I'm really, I'm really torn as to where to go, but I'm going to, I'm going to go somewhere. Oh. I don't know. Thinking music. No, no, we're not doing it. Do not do it. <laughs> do, 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 do. Um, okay, so I think I am going to go to. Yes, that is where I'm going to go to. I'm going to go to the 1985 film debut of Ethan Hawke in one of my favorite childhood movies explorers oh wow that's a blast from the past yeah a boy obsessed with 50s sci-fi movies about aliens has a recurring dream about a blueprint for some kind of some kind which he draws for his inventor friend with the help of a third kid they follow it and build themselves a spaceship now what this is ethan hawk it is Phoenix. jason Preason. um and tying into the forthcoming 
critical role Legend of Vox Machina, a very young Talis and Jaffe as Ludwig, one of the brothers. James Cromwell, directed by Joe Dante, whose name everyone should know. He is the guy who did Inner Space, Gremlins, Small Soldiers, The Howling, this. He was a stalwart of the 80s and 90s and doing some fantastic stuff. It's been not too long since I last watched this, and it's it goes a weird way. <laughs> I don't think I've seen it for probably it's uh, since the 80s. Oh. I recall being a big fan of it at the time. This is one of my brother's favourite movies growing up. And, um, yeah, I just had to go back there, frankly. Just had to. <laughs> Here we go. So we're going back to the 80s next week with yeah. Explorers. Lovely. Okay, so that's that. Let me go into time code. Oh, is it time for our sponsors, Travis? It is time for our sponsor this it's week, and they are. We have it a, we have a particularly unique sponsor this week. Um, oh. I, think, I think you're going to enjoy it. We had okay. we had the movie trailers the last couple of weeks, but um, mm-hmm. let me just cue, cue it all up here. Okay, don't forget to use hashtag no discount at checkout for a zero discount at checkout. And I think that's particularly appropriate because there are some checkouts this week. We are sponsored this week by the the 19th of February 1992 episode of the Australian game show Supermarket Sweep. Supermarket Sweep. Let us go. Welcome back. Supermarket Sweep, here's a good game. Our partners have changed, and I thought they never would. We have Ian on 110. Well, that's one minute and ten seconds, as far as you're concerned. Uh, Elaine, 120, and Justin in front on 130. Here's our Coles Odd Man Out game. Have a look at your screens. Here's a gift pack for a new baby, a very new baby. Pick the Odd Man Out. One of those products shouldn't be there. For a very new baby. Can you see it? Yes, Justin. Fiber Plus. Fiber Plus. Check that one out, please. That's the one we wanted. Well done, Justin. Put you further ahead. Let's invite your partners back. Chris, Karen, and Sylvia, join us. This is our 54321 game. I'll give you five clues. And when you think you know what the product is that I'm referring to, buzz in, yell it out, okay? 110. Yes, it's sort of a catch up round here. We have 30 seconds at stake, a chance to get some more time for your super sweep, which is coming up in the next, after the next break. All right, here's the first one. English cheese, most popular, softer, goes on easily. It's in a jar. English, yes, Chris? Cream cheese. Cream cheese is not what I'm after, really, no. Anyone else like to buzz in? You're out of this one, Chris and Justin. Anyone else? No idea? It's cheddar spread, craft cheddar spread, never mind. Oh, the crowd have leapt to its foot. All right. Here's your second chance. Rich dairy food. A Victorian ski resort. Whip it. Pour it. Butter is made from it. Is there anyone home? (laughs) Rich dairy food. Yes, Karen. Cream. Cream. What sort of cream? Victorian ski resort? Buller cream I was after. I thought it was pretty easy. There's a person here from England who'd heard of it. 
All right, last chance for 10 seconds. And Karen, only a minute 10, only a minute 20 for Sylvia, a minute 40 for Justin and Chris. That's all the time you'll be allowed to spend in the Carl supermarket in a moment. So you need 10 seconds here. Originally from Belgium, that's a good clue, a vegetable, green, tiny cabbage, McCain's. Originally, yes, Justin. Um, Brussels. Brussels sprouts. Yes. Good boy. McCain's Brussels sprouts. They go even further ahead. In just a moment's time, we'll be seeing them race through this supermarket going absolutely berserk. 110 for Karen, 120 for Sylvia, and 150 for Chris. Don't you dare go away. That's the thing. And what's nice as bad as This is the nitty gritty. Yes, as bad as There we go. Well, what a treat that was. That that was that was a thing. <laughs> that was a British game show first. Do you yeah, remember? I, <laughs> I I do. I do remember supermarket sweep and I do remember so many teachers thinking, yeah, we can replicate that in the school hall. <clears throat> they couldn't. No, I'm, I'm shocked. Shocked, I tell you. <laughs> All right. Now, where are we going to go to next? I, I think you, you think we can Critical Raw, and there seemed to be a link from our what we are just talking about to your interest in this new show. Oh, yeah, sure, absolutely. So for um, anyone who doesn't know, Critical Role is a Twitch um, channel of voice actors, including Matthew Mercer, Laura Bailey, Ashley Johnson, Travis Willingham, Sam Regal, um, Liam O'Brien, Talison Jaffe, and the new edition for Campaign 3 of Robbie Damon. Um, they have been going for years now. They started off as um, just a group of friends just going around, and Matt Mercer was the dungeon master for their first campaign, um, which is based around the traveling group of Vox Machina. They what, What's that? Uh, that's just the name of their group, Vox Machina. They were initially called the Shits, and then they, <laughs> they renamed uh, one of the characters recommended them maybe change your name if they're going to be dealing with royalty. Um. And it's um, it's something that actually spawned from them just having this private game. And then Felicia Day, who is um, a, a creative director at Geek and Sundry, um, a, a Twitch channel, and uh, was kind of co-founded with um, Will Wheaton. Uh, they brought them in and just said, hey, do you want to do this live on Twitch? And it became very successful um, to the point where they're now on campaign three, I think about 10 years, nine or 10 years after first starting. Um, third campaign, they've had multiple successful Kickstarter things for miniatures of the characters that they have. They've launched official uh, Wizards of the Coast adventure books now with a new one that's just um, up for pre-order now, which is Taldore Reborn. Taldore is the continent where the first campaign takes place. Um, they've got the Explorer's Guide to Wildmount, which is another continent in it. So it's it's this massive growing thing. And because of the success of... Um, they launched a Kickstarter campaign where they were just going to have an independent few episodes of animated Vox Machina. Um, basically, it was going to serve as like an animated introduction for the pre-stream days of the group 
it broke all the Kickstarter records and ended up being picked up by Amazon Studio and um, signed on for two seasons. We've got season one coming out on the 28th of this month, and it is basically going to show the origin of them coming together as a group, from what I understand, as well as it seems like campaign one is going to culminate in one of the most popular among critters, that's the fan name for themselves, for ourselves, um, which is the Briarwood arc, which is, goes deep into the backstory of Percival de Rolo, played by Talison Jaffe. Um, and then from there, the each time there's like different campaigns within the campaign, often just focusing on one character or another as they go a bit more into their backstory in present day. But at the same time, it's not flashbacks or anything like that. It's them just kind of like, oh, shit, something's come up that just so happens to be related to me in some way, shape, or form, or something uh, something along those lines. It is the best long-form improvisational storytelling that you can hope for. Matt Mercer is fantastic at crafting stories and crafting characters. These guys know how to use their voices and are very, very proficient with improv. So watching the actual Critical Role episodes... It's just a delight how they try and break each other and get people to snap out of character, um, how they just play from one to another. There's um, a particular bit in the, the, I think it's the first episode of Campaign 3. They've got all new characters in the different campaigns. And um, Sam Regal's character is an automaton called Fresh Cut Grass. And they are asking, so like, oh, we've we've never seen an automaton before. Can you tell me about it? So like, oh well, I'm my name's Fresh Cut Grass. I was named after um, my my creator's favorite smells. There was oatmeal, there was cinnamon, there was pussy, and it just instantly breaks pretty much everyone at the table because it's just out of blue. And then Ashley Johnson's character is just like, oh well, I wasn't expecting that, and it's just so fun in the moment it's a group of people just having a joke essentially but having this real emotional journey so it's going to be really interesting to see how it translates to an animated linear storytelling arc without the the injection of the in the moment improvisation <sighs> so excited i i, I gonna say again i don't get it like watching a bunch of people play a board game it it's not a board yeah. game, though. That's the thing. It is a board game. It's got dice. It's there's no board except the battle maps. It's which... still a board game. It's like it's mm. I, I, it, it's one step up from Sudoku. Um, Fuck you, <laughs> Sudoku <laughs> with funny voices. Um, it is not. It is not at all. Okay, look, at fairness, I, 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 I'm still waiting for you to organize that mini campaign you promised a year ago. It is, but, um, it is coming. I now think I actually have enough people to make it worthwhile group. I, I have um, committed. I, I've never played Dungeons & Dragons. I'm fairly certain it won't be for me. But there's only one way to find out for sure, and that's yeah. to try it. Uh, yeah. And I've committed to do that. I so, But I kind of feel like this show is one big in-joke. And it has got just happens to have 20 or 30 million people who are in on the joke, which is good for the guys <laughs> who run it. Um, but I kind of feel like if you're not in on the joke, 
then this show is probably not going to resonate with terribly many people who are not in on that joke. I I worry about that, but I the the people that they've got involved, the animation house of Titmouse are fantastic animation, really good. They really know their stuff. These guys have decades and decades of experience in the industry on um, so like voice direction, acting, improvisation, writing, all of the things that they need. This is a passion project for them. Um, I think that it's probably going to end up working in the same way that we've talked about ad nauseum, Pixar's multi-leveled entertainment of you can just get in, watch it and enjoy it like um, as if it was just just so happened to be an animated fantasy series. Forget the the D and D element of it. That's not gonna play into the the animated thing at all. It is just an animated TV show. But for those who know the characters, there's gonna be so much more. Like I am certain. One of the things that there's a bit of kind of battle music that they always play, and it's got this um, trumpet trilla. I feel pretty certain that at some point there's gonna be fight, and someone like someone on the the parapets of, of a castle is going to do that trumpet and it's going to just sound stupid, be played for laughs in the show, but anyone who is a critter is just going to go ah! and laugh. There's going to be those in-jokes without a doubt, but these guys know how to and they really care about including everyone. They are very big on inclusion for representation. They've had um, they've had gay, non-gender, bi- non-binary. They've had um, disabled characters in it. Um, they are open to everyone, and they are very open to in- increasing and welcoming more people in. I just can't see, unless they fuck up on trying that, I can't see them creating a project that, and especially for Amazon to have backed as well and it's gone yep we're giving you two seasons at least i think they're gonna probably have a stipulation in there somewhere just saying hey we need this to be more than just in jokes we need oh, to yeah i just I, i'm sure they will try and make it a broader appeal i just kind of it has this overwhelming waft of nerdiness around it um and <laughs> that, that's because i know what it is like and you know it's like do I really want to go down that rabbit hole? You know, is that what I, you know, what am I saying about myself by watching this? Um, watching a bunch of people play a board game on, on Shut up. it's not, it's also, it's, it's storytelling where the chart, where the fate of every action reaction is done by chance. This is why I think I won't be very good at it. Cause I just don't know how seriously I can take it. But as I said, I will try it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, I just, I just feel like it's got this. Yeah, so it feels deeply, deeply uncool. Um, but you know, but it's probably so uncool. It is cool because obviously, <laughs> the amount of people who watch this are like, it's stunning. Like I, I don't get it, but like, yeah, yeah. more power to them. Um, yeah. it's, it's, it's perfectly harmless. And as you said, they're doing uh, a fairly positive thing with representation. Mm. But I, I just don't know. It just feels. Icky. This is going to be like, a struggle for you. I feel I'm walking in on somebody else's somebody else's thing. I I feel like I am walking into that guy walking into a bar and everyone's gone quiet and looked at the door. Like that that's what I feel like about getting into something. Yeah, like this. Just, so, just stop playing and just like pretty much. It's like <laughs> you know, the, the, uh, the the sort of a bush rolls across. You know the 
Um, anyway, but I, I, it's just probably just a me thing, but I'm just like, uh, I want to watch a show about, you know, a prequel to a bunch of people playing D&D. But okay. see, you're, you're looking at it in, in that regard, which is absolutely the wrong way of looking at it. What way should I look at it? The way you, if you were, if you were already an established fan of Critical Role, so like, oh my God, I get to go and see everything that they have done. Um, before this is a great opportunity for me to go back and just see it and then the animation is beautiful it's it's me reliving this story blah blah blah, blah. but for someone who has not done critical role who does not do D, &D um you should just look at this as oh okay there's a new animated show coming out george is excited about it cool i'm not, so, I'm not be... saying i won't watch it i will watch it i'll check it out i just have a feeling that like without any understanding of like i mean how if I wanted to get into Critical Role, how would I start? Um, I would generally recommend people to go to their guest episodes that they had for Campaign 1, where they split the team of Vox Machina and brought in um, for one team they had... Um, uh, Mary Elizabeth McGlynn and... Um, Felicia Day. And then in the other one they had Will Friedel and Will Wheaton. Come in. And they basically go off and do these like each each group has two episodes where they are forced to kind of mingle with these new people. So it's a good introduction because they're reintroducing their own characters and you get to meet these new ones as well on these shorter episodes. It's not a full arc or anything like that. It's just Two episodes with these guys, two episodes with these guys, and you get to see some of the the the, le the depth and breadth of possibility that happens because there's some emotional stuff that goes on that is pure role playing where they're just having these conversations around the campfire and there's no dice rolls, but then there's other times where shit fucks up because the the dice just weren't in their favor. And it's one of the most iconic moments in that particular one. One of the groups does something and something happens to an iconic item. And the other party are in the other room, in the green room. And the delay between the stream, the live moment and the stream is about 30 seconds. And it happens. And the guys in the main party who are playing, they're sort of like, oh, my God, they're going to kill us. And then 30 seconds later, you just hear this as they're all screaming because this shit happened it's it it's so good it's so good but even then it's like one episode of critical roles on average two and a half three and a half hours long so it's still an investment the best way to get into it is to play some D, &D and just have people who are established who know how to play D, &D who are good at just bringing a fully brought in character and what are referred to as ringers for new people. And that's what I want to do with you. I've got a couple of people who are going to be really good at that and help you get in and you can invest into it as much as you want. You can create a character that is more reserved and doesn't interact too much. And that's just part of your character. Or you can go, you know what? I just want to be stupid and have a really stupid character or a really noble character or whatever you like, whatever feels comfortable for you to experiment. 
and the thing is you, you may very well build like a rogue for example and say like oh i'm really good at picking locks you may roll and it fucks up and it's like oh this it's it's up to you how you want to play that you could just be really frustrated because you didn't succeed in the thing that you're supposed to be good at or you can play it in another way or however you like it's entirely up to i'm you. gonna base my my character off donald trump he doesn't everything he does is works out the way exactly as he expected to work out if a lock didn't break that's because the lock is rigged you know <laughs> um you see know. that is a fucking awesome character right there that is a cool um, anyway i we will see when we get to that I, I i will be curious to take a look and see how accessible it is you're right they really when you're coming in with such a you know a niche mm. you know a niche sort of uh ip if you will yeah you, uh, that like it, it's a bit like we talked about this with marvel right like if you wanted to if someone who didn't watch anything from marvel ever, ever before and he said, hey, you want to get in? You should watch this. How the fuck do you get into Marvel now? It's like eight, nine, ten years of lore you need to be across before it makes any sense. And so um, Marvel can get away with that because they're Marvel and they make the biggest films in the world. But <laughs> Spider-Man this week became the fourth highest grossing film of all time. Um, Critical Role probably doesn't have that luxury. So we'll see how no, they go. And they really need to make this you know, accessible to, to anyone and everyone. It's a, it's a lot of uphill struggles that they have to do as well because whilst Critical Role have phenomenal success in the field of Twitch, like apparently they were the, the, the highest profiting channel on Twitch according to some leaked um, data or something like that, um, they've had this record-breaking Kickstarter campaign. They've got this two seasons confirmed for them um but it's still an insular group and DD is whilst the wizards of the coast who create dungeons and dragons have made so much effort to make it more accessible and open and easier to understand and to get into for new players it is still that barrier of entry and that there's a lot of stigma around it of oh it's a lot of maths or, oh, I'm not really into playing a character like that. I don't want to make a character. There's a lot of hurdles and stigma around what it takes to actually play it that they've got to contend with as well. And then on top of that, it's also for people like yourselves, if fantasy is not particularly your forte, it's like, okay, this is categorically stacked against you. <laughs> it's not really playing into my sweet spot in fantasy, no. but I respect the people who enjoy it really like it and they get a lot out of it and you know i can see how you would it's, mm. it's a game and it's social and if you have a lot of fun it's just don't know that it's for me but we will see <laughs> we will find out um we will uh, have a session we will actually that could be mm, that could be a fun thing to for us to stream you making your character us sitting down and you and me going through helping you make your character and right. developing it um, but we will have a session. We will have a session. It will happen. <laughs> now, I've talked more than enough about Critical Role. Um, do you want to talk about being the Ricardos? Because you've had being the Ricardos on the back burner. Mm, yes, actually, that's a good yes. call. Um, being the Ricardos is, kind of the links, because it is on Amazon as well. It is okay. an Amazon exclusive feature, I guess you would say. Mm -hmm. Um now, it's interesting because I, I uh, do it. I think we have a vote from, from Mon over here saying we should scream that um, me creating 
the uh, the character of Mango Mussolini, who is absolutely a hundred percent right all the time. It's it's going to be huge. It's going to be great. People are talking about it already. Can you see? Um, <laughs> this is awesome. Um, yeah, it could be. It could be hilarious. It, it could be. I don't know about it. it, it Montez Travis's D and D character development would be hilarious. Yep, that's open for debate. But we'll, we we can do that. We can do that um, when we get there. Um, talking about Bing and Ricardo's, which is the Amazon Amazon Prime exclusive feature film around Lucille Ball. Follows Lucy, Lucille Ball and her husband, Desi Arnaz, as they face a crisis that could end their careers and another that could end their marriage. Um, this is written and directed by the one, the only, the incomparable Aaron Sorkin, stars Nicole Kidman as Lucille mm-hmm. Ball, Avia Bardem as Desi Arnaz, uh, J.K. Simmons in here, uh, Tony Hale, if you don't know who Tony Hale is, he was in um, Arrested Development. Uh, mm-hmm. Buster in the rest of development for years. Um, Ronnie Cox, Clark Gregg, um, a few other for me, Brian Howe, a few other familiar faces mm-hmm. in there. Um, this is a story about, um, about well, basically one week in their, in their career where uh, at the start of a week, there's uh, a hint of a story that could be leaking that uh, at one point in time, Lucille Ball was a member of the Communist Party. So this is set in the 50s, thinking mm-hmm. McCarthyism, House American Activities Committee, mm-hmm. uh, and being outed as a communist, that's basically the end of your career. Even for someone as um, insanely famous as um, as Lucille Ball was at this mm-hmm. point in time. Um, additionally, she's also dealing with the fact that uh, she is pregnant. Um, and they are trying to sort of, how are they going to deal with that on the TV show? Because mm-hmm. she hasn't got very much longer before she starts to show. And this is the 1950s, and no one's pregnant on television in the 50s. Nope. Um, additionally, we, we've got another plot thread in here of um, her doubting um, her marriage with, with uh, Desi and his um, philandering, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are all interplayed against them trying to sort of put out fires amongst the their co-stars. Uh, the co-stars being uh, J.K. Simmons, who plays William Frawley, and Nina Arianda, who plays Vivian Vance. So I don't know. I can't remember actually ever having seen I Love Lucy, but that was sort of about they played – those mm-hmm. are their neighbours who are kind of two of their other main stars on the show. And okay. in, both of them individually have other problems that sort of – or other fires that need to be put out along yeah. the way while, you know, they're dealing with these sort of bigger bigger ticket issues that they're working through. Um I liked this a lot, but I should note, I'm a Sorkin fan. You are. I like what Aaron Sorkin does. I pretty much like everything he does. I like the way his characters talk. I like the worlds he builds for them. But if you don't, I don't know that you're going to get on board with this because oh this – I talked last week about the French Dispatch and how yes. that was the most Wes Anderson film that ever Wes Anderson. Yeah. This is the most Sorkin film that ever Sorkin. Like okay. this – you're, I mean, like, I've seen all of West Wing a number of times. I've watched the newsroom two or three to- through two or three times. I watched most of Studio Seven on Sunset Strip was the one that got f- cancelled because of a writer strike. Oh yeah, that's right. We've got the Steve Jobs movie. We've got um, Social Network. Both of those are big films. I'm big fa- a big fan of, and this fits strictly into the Sorkin pattern. 
Like okay. I'd say this, the film that this most closely resembles would be, what was his film called? Was it called Jobs? Was that what it was called? Steve Jobs film he did? Um, I can't remember because it was the yes. two of them. Yes, so it was. Yeah, it was, the, it was the, the, the um, Ashton Kutcher one. Um, and um, it was, yeah, anyway, this one most most um, directly, Steve Jobs, sorry. Jobs was the, <laughs> Jobs was the Kutcher one. Steve Jobs yes. was the Aaron Sorkin one. This yes. one most closely resembles that. We've talked about it at length before. If you're going to mm. tell a biopic about someone, you, you know, you probably don't do what the Kutcher film did and pick and bite off Steve Jobs' entire life and try and tell it, you know, with quick snippets mm -hmm. of all the interesting things that happened to a guy who achieved that much stuff. You instead do what they did with Steve Jobs and pick a week or a couple of moments in someone's life. So two or three key moments, it kind of reveals that person's character. Mm. Um, and that's what this is. This is the Steve Jobs one or two moments. And in this sense, he's just picked one uh, okay. uh, a week. And in fact, kind of twisted reality a little bit in the sense he's kind of compressed all these things that happened over a period of years in reality into one week. Okay. And then uses that as a way to sort of tell us something about their characters. Um, I enjoyed that at the same time as I realized that was what he was doing. I was watching this going, God, this feels familiar. This feels so familiar. Um, <laughs> it feels so much like Jobs. If you can think about the Steve Jobs film where we've got um, Steve Jobs going around dealing with, um, uh, what's the guy's name? I can't remember. Dealing with different, different problems. I, 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 Is I it Wozniak. Steve Wozniak played by Seth, Seth, um, Seth Rogen. And he's mm. also dealing with his, he's got the prop thing going on with his daughter and his ex-wife. Mm. And he's got technical problems to deal with. And he's dealing with um, uh, the guy from Pepsi who played, Jeff Daniels played, I can't remember his name, but the guy who took over Apple after he left. And um, oh, now yeah. his name? Um, I can't think of it anyway. So it's that kind mm. of thing. So we've got, you know, um, we've got uh, Lucille Ball and, and Javier Bardem's Lucy and, and, and uh, Desi kind of dealing with um, you know, studio executives trying to get their, sell them on an idea that Lucy, or, that Lucy will be pregnant on the TV show and they'll be able to do that and get away with it. Um, mm. The same time as, the, you know, uh, the, the actor playing Vivian, you know, is like, oh, no, you know, I'm feeling very unattractive playing, you know, a very frumpy woman on television married to a man so much older who can't stand her. You know, she's trying to put that drama down. And J.K. Simmons plays an alcoholic and he's, you know, let's put that fire out at the same time as this other thing over here. Mm. Um, sort of them trying to spin plates, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, I actually dug it. I, I thought it was it was really interesting. It, I mm. thought the cast was excellent. I mean, mm -hmm. those three main stars, and in, in, I don't know who Nina Ariana is. She was pretty good as well. Mm. Um, I think she comes from a stage background, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Um, but I think you might see a little bit more of her moving forward. But Nicole Kidman and Javier Bardem, I thought were fantastic. It's one of the mm. better things I've seen Nicole do for a while. Yeah. I believe that role was originally supposed to be played by Kate Blanchett. Um, she okay. would have been amazing in it too. But um, mm -hmm. Javier Bardem, in, in, in fact, I think is probably the standout for me. He's, he plays a role with much aplomb. And in fact, mm -hmm. I believe Desi Arnaz's actual uh, daughter came out and said she rang its praises. He doesn't look like him, but my goodness, he inhabited that character of, you know, someone mm. with that bravado and charisma. Yeah. Uh, of Yanez. And J.K. Simmons, well. Yeah. Come on. Did, did he Come ever on. Put in, the guy doesn't put in a bad performance. Like, the guy's, yeah, he's, he's a, a workhorse, solid man. man. He's a workhorse. He's amazing. Um, I, and it, it, the film does try to deal with a few issues in here, a bit, a bit of, you mm. know, 
yeah, women's role is in different things. And Alia Shawcat from um, Arrest Development is in this as well. And she plays a female writer on the um, writing staff. And, you know, what was it like for a, a woman to be in a comedy writing room in the 1950s and that sort of thing? Uh, yeah. Especially where the show is, you know, all about, you know, Lucy's the biggest star on the show and she's a woman as well. Um, mm. I enjoyed it immensely. I think it was really good fun. But okay. just, if you don't like Sorkin, Maybe expect to find it a little bit annoying because he's pulling his he's pulling his old tricks. It's, it's a classic yeah. hits collection by Barrow and Sorkin. You've seen it before, but with different characters. Okay, so now because he's only directed three movies: Molly's oh. Game, Trial of the Chicago Seven, and this as movies. What would you like to see Aaron Sorkin do next? Because it the way you're talking, it kind of sounds a little bit like um, he's now. Maybe you've you've seen enough of this trick, and you want to tackle something else or a different different style. What do you what do you think? What what, what do you think's next? Well, I would like to maybe see him tackle something a little bit outside his comfort zone. Maybe a different genre he's not used to. Maybe it's a bit like when Quentin Tarantino said he had an idea for Star Trek, and you're all like, "Yeah, I'll believe that when that happens." But my God, how interesting would that be to see Tarantino mm-hmm. doing Star Trek, doing science fiction? Fuck yeah. yeah! Where do I sign up for that? Um, and I mean, I mean, one one thing I think you can't level at Quentin is he has bounced around his genres a little bit. You know, he doesn't. That's he probably fair. does what he does well, but he does it in different ways. And maybe I'd like to see something from Aaron Sorkin. I don't have a problem with doing. Hmm. If, you, if you're good at something, <laughs> no problem with you continuing yeah. to do that, right? Like ACDC has made a fifty-year career of playing the same song pretty much. <laughs> the entire time. And they're fucking awesome doing it. So why wouldn't you keep doing it? That's fair. Um, I, I don't have a problem with that. But maybe step outside your comfort zone a little bit, like you know, mm-hmm. politics and that kind of thing is his jam. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe an action film, you know, mm-hmm. maybe a war film, you know, science fiction, something like that would be. I would love to see re- his really verbose characters, mm. you know, quipping and stuff in a horror film, for example. Um, uh, I, I would like to see him do something like that, and maybe. Uh, in, in, when it comes to directing, he's he's done very talky films. I think today, mm. um, may, it would be interesting to see him. I mean, there was talk a couple of years ago, maybe he'd been having conversations with Marvel. Um, I don't know that it ever came to anything, but like that that's was in the news. I mean, that's weird. <laughs> would be a Sorkin, you know, a, a Sorkin superhero film. Now, wouldn't that be interesting? Well, I think what, how much more interesting would the Eternals be if they're given it to Sorkin? Um, maybe, maybe. maybe had him write it at least because Chloe Zhao does amazing visuals, but mm. dialogue not so much. So, um, you know, my thought I'll, I'll pitch this to you the Jack Ryan TV show that they've had two seasons of with uh John Krasinski, get Aaron Sorkin in to do the third season. I would be down with that. That would be, I, I haven't watched the second season, so I don't know where it's at, but um. I would be interested to see him do a spy a spy show. It would be interesting. The, just a bit of just of that action that it's not completely out of his wheelhouse, but bringing a bit more of that um, CIA analyst political side that generally seems to be a little on the light side for, for a lot of those CIA things. They usually end up falling into that um, action movie rather than Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy or something like that. I think that could be quite a good fit for Aaron Sorkin. I think something like that would suit him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and I would maybe a bit of action would be would be would be fun mm -hmm. in there and see how we go to that. But yeah, uh, I don't think we're going to see it. <laughs> I, no. I think he he's good. At, I mean, apparently his next thing is a TV movie of a few good men. I don't know if he's actually involved in that or he's mm -hmm. just based on the fact that he wrote the original film. Um, mm -hmm. But um, look, I mean, I wasn't we showed the trial of Chicago Seven. I don't know if that was quite in the same genre as the rest of his stuff. I don't know if you mm -hmm. saw that. I didn't think it was as good as everybody else did. Yeah. But anyway, I, I think it is Rivera's he's, he's one of the best writers going around in, yeah. in Hollywood today. I don't know if he's quite in the same category of director as he is a writer. Mm -hmm. um, and that's fine. He's just, he's a he's a competent director. Yeah. Um, I think he's at his best when we see him paired with someone, as we did with Social Network, with a truly great director like David Fincher mm -hmm. and a great writer they can create magic. Yes, 100%, 100%. Um, can yeah. I dominate for a little bit longer and just move on to the thing I've actually been binging all week? Yes, tell me. So someone put me onto this last week. Uh, Yellow Jackets is the show, and I love to call that. It's actually, I don't know if you're familiar with the writer, the Australian feminist writer, Clementine Ford. Nope. I don't know where she actually writes these days. She's an author, uh, a writer. She used to write for some of the major publications, but I see her. I follow her on Facebook. Okay. She's um, a bit of a firebrand, I guess is one way to put it. Um, okay. But um, she did mention in one of her live streams that she's been watching this and enjoying it, and she thought it was one of the best shows on telly. Okay. I hadn't heard of it, so I thought I would give it a go. Um, and, wow, this one has really slipped beneath the radar. I don't know if maybe it's just me who missed it, but I haven't spoken to anybody else who's actually heard about it yet. It okay. is streaming. It is a Showtime production. It is streaming on Australia, in, on, in Australia, sorry, eh, on Paramount, I think, Paramount Plus, which, uh, yeah, exactly, um, which is maybe why we haven't heard about it, or at least me, mm -hmm. because who pays attention to what the fuck's happening at Paramount Plus? Like, yeah. why would anybody subscribe to that? Like, I see it pop up in my Amazon Prime going, ooh, you can watch this on Paramount Plus. I'm like, oh, my Prime subscription gets me Paramount Plus. That's cool. Oh, no, it doesn't. You want an extra $9 a month for me to watch that direct? No, thank you. No. Um, but if they keep coming up with the quality of production of something like this, well, then maybe we there is another contender um, for, okay. for our money uh, in contention because this is probably – I am seven episodes into a 10 episode run and this <laughs> might be the best TV show I've seen in the last two or three years. We're going to see where it lands. See if it sticks to landing. Cause you know, we, yeah. we were hundred percent on board for, for one division as a great show mm -hmm. and they really didn't stick the landing on that one. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it, it, it kind of determines uh, how okay. it all goes down. But anyway, enough. Uh, for What's this about? What is, what is yellow jackets? A wildly talented high school girls soccer team becomes the, Brackets, unlucky survivors of a plane crash deep in the Ontario wilderness. Okay. So the girls' soccer team are the Yellow Jackets. I think it's a kind of insect or something in America. Uh, maybe a bee. <laughs> I don't know. I'm basing um, that purely off of Ant-Man. <laughs> uh, yes. Funnily enough, it is not about um, the character from Ant-Man, which is, you know, everyone's been screaming for that spin-off now. Um, I know that because they paint bees on their face. And okay. their war cry is buzz, buzz, buzz. Um, so uh, I kind of put two and two together. Um, so we have a girls' soccer team who uh, won their state championship, 
one of their parents is very rich and hires a private jet for them to fly to Seattle, I think it was, to yeah. um, to play off in the national championships. And in the midst of them flying there, they go, they fly a little further north because of reasons, um, and they crash into notes in the Ontario wilderness. The show actually opens with a chase through the snow um, by of uh, a girl by other people or women and it ends in a particularly shocking way um that really sets you up and the show this show ain't fucking around like you know this isn't this ain't um this ain't boy meets world right like this is this <laughs> boy meets wilderness well, girl meets world for that for that case either it's um it's uh, a little bit initially you're kind of feeling like okay so this is a Jenna Bent reimagining of Lord of the Flies. That's where my mind was going. Uh, and there is some elements of that Lord of the Flies in there. But okay. uh, after that opening where you kind of go, oh, okay, that's where it's going to go, at least seven episodes in, it's managed to really differentiate itself strongly enough from that, from that okay. the William Golding story. So it, I don't think the creators would deny its influence on them so this has more of a mystery element to it than probably um than, than something like a straight lord of the flies reimagining might the story takes place in at times three different um uh time periods okay so we have seen to take place or even four really um we have many scenes to take place um with, between the girls and their various goings on before the plane flight we have scenes i guess what we might call the you know in the, in the either in the plane or after the plane has crashed of them surviving in the wilderness and then we have i guess what one might say is the main story plot which is the girls you know uh 25 years after the plane crash um the surviving girls uh and uh, who are now trying to solve um, you know an ongoing mystery about someone um who is yeah, someone's killed one of them, uh, and someone is now blackmailing them who claims to know what really happened in the wilderness and how what really was involved in their survival. So it's one part Lord of the Flies, one part Lost, and one part I Know What You Did Last Summer? It's a little bit, not quite slashery as I Know What You Did Last Summer, but, you know, maybe, you know, a little bit. And also a little bit of Only Murders in the Building because there's some true crime stuff going on in there and... A little bit of um, one flew over the cookies nest, and okay, it's, it's a it's this a wonderful is an blend. It's, a, it's a, a very tiny elements of some of those other things in there, you know. Um, okay. it's a, it's a very interesting blancmange of um, <laughs> of different different genres and different ideas in there, um, and it's really compelling. Uh, it's setting up a really fantastic story to where point. Like I got really grumpy last night. But I finished episode six and had to go to bed because I had to get up for work this morning. Like okay. I really, given the opportunity, if I didn't have to work today, I, I would have probably binged through the the rest of. I think I went through the first six episodes yesterday, um, and um, they're one hour episodes, so they're not sure. You haven't done that in a long time. No, it, I don't normally sit down and binge yeah. a show like that. But this story, just just hanging on to it, like I need to know what happens next. Um, the characters um, are wonderful. It takes a little while to have a criticism. It takes a really a little while to um, 
really establish who each who our most key characters are um and who but in the sense of you know uh when we're seeing them in the present it's a little bit easier because we get some fairly recognizable actors playing them we have mm. uh melanie linsky um who i think he's one of the great underrated actors of our time um she you know the name heavenly creatures she was fucking great in that there you go yep. uh there was also a two and a half men but we don't mention the war um, we have um, Tawny Cypress, who I don't know the name. You're probably going to know the face. She's been in uh, a fair few different things. If she's not, she was in Billions, amongst other things. But I think oh, she's yeah. going to going to probably break out as a result of this role. We have Juliet Lewis, the great Juliet Lewis, who f- could forget uh, Natural Born Killers. Uh, mm-hmm. Christina Ricci getting a significantly meatier role than that she got in the latest Matrix film she was in for one scene. Um, mm-hmm. So we have these, we have these, the adult versions of the girls, and then trying to somehow figure out the girls when we flash back to the past, which one we're looking at. Some of them are easy because the younger version of um, Melanie Linsky, Shauna, looks exactly like her. So you're like, oh, okay, that's Shauna. Um, <laughs> And the, the the character who Christina Ricci's character is named Misty. The younger Misty's pretty easy. The younger Juliet Lewis is pretty easy. But there's a few others you kind of like. Hang on a second, which one's that one again? But once okay. you kind of pick it all together, you go, oh, okay, this is pretty good. Um, okay. the, the acting is first class. The the story and the tension they're building is unbearable. Like I can't wait to get to the end and figure out what's going on. And I'm just like, please don't disappoint me, guys. Don't just put this to be another ghost story or, you know, oh. uh, it was all a dream or something like that. You know, don't, don't Please give me be a, the one, be the one. Don't just be a, you know, the, the, the mystery lost version of a sky beam, you know, like um, <laughs> something like that. I, I'm really hoping for it to swerve me a little bit and just really give me something okay. unexpected or if you have to give me something expected, make it good. Yeah. Um, it's like I said, it's not pulling any punches. It's pretty brutal with its violence. Um, okay. Not a whole lot in the way of nudity or anything like that to worry about if that's your concern. But the, like I said, the violence in here is it's it's upfront and it's right. un, unwavering when it needs to be. It's not gratuitous violence. It's not happening constantly throughout an episode, but it happens frequently enough that yeah. you know that anyone could die at any given moment, except for girls who survive, because you know. We know they survive. Um, but the rest of them, you're like, well, well do we? Well, if, it, if it's got a lost sort of vibe to it, maybe they're all dead. But wasn't that what was happening in Lost? I don't remember. No one knows. Not even the actors or writers, <laughs> anyone. No one knows. It's just whatever um, you want to So, yeah, it's 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 really quite aggressive. It's like in the last, most recent episode, we saw one of the girls killed by wolves. And, again, you know, that's not a pretty sight, you know, so... No. Um, but if, you, if I have a concern, I'm like, there's a bit of supernatural stuff creeping in here, and I'm like, you know, okay, it, it, yeah, that makes me a bit sus because yeah. supernatural stuff it can get a bit lazy, you know, like, oh, it was a ghost or you know, it was on an Indian burial ground or something like that. It happened know? because it needed to. Shut up, move on. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, so, look, I um, some of the characters in here, I think, are, are going to be some of the more memorable ones uh, from any show I can think of. Christina Ricci's Misty is fucking terrifying. Okay. Like, and in a an incredibly non-threatening way. Like, you know, um, 
she doesn't look like she'd knock you knock over uh you know a fly kind of thing but hmm. when you see her what she's prepared to do whew, okay okay she it's um Hannibal Lecter shit you know um and it's well, I can't I can't give it enough praise it's it's fantastic fantastic television at its absolute best um the people behind it are Ashley Lyle and Barton Nickerson not mm-hmm. names that ring off, uh, roll off my tongue. I can't say I've heard of them, but they were responsible for the Narcos and Narcos Mexico series on Netflix. Okay. Uh, I haven't watched them, but I know that they are very highly praised. Yeah, yeah. I haven't delved into those either, but, um, yeah, they always come up as some of the best stuff. Maybe I'll get around to it. <laughs> well, there's, there's no shortage. I was saying this sort of people this week on my Facebook, like um, – it's pretty easy these days to miss stuff. There's so many different streaming services. Even yeah. in Australia, we're up to what five or six? Um, Disney, Disney, Netflix, Amazon, Stan, Binge, Paramount, um, Paramount, kind of SBS on demand, maybe. If I knew as well. If you count the free ones, maybe, that's around yeah. eight different streaming services. Yeah. Not counting the uh, the freeware streaming catch up yeah. channels and. I mean, and I'm assuming nobody here is stupid enough to subscribe to Tubi. Um, <laughs> I believe there's a horror the story. The butcher is in the building, and he is bearing knives. Is a is a is a horror screaming service? I think is available for Australians as well. Um, so that's you know, I mean, it's a bit niche, but you know, uh, it has original stuff streaming on there. Yeah. You can't see it, so it's going to happen. That especially if you're streaming on one of the smaller platforms. Yeah, like like Paramount, but you got you might slip beneath the radar. So, yeah. Um, yeah, please take this opportunity to to take this recommendation and give it a look if you're curious at all, because I don't think you'll regret it. Okay, all right. Shall we finish off with a bit of a talk of 2021? Sure, that's a good call. Yeah. Okay. So the best of 2021. Uh, get a time code in there. So um, I will start with, I guess yours is in no particular order. Would I be right in saying that? That is absolutely right. It reflects the rest of my life. <laughs> Touche. Um, <laughs> I've cheated a little bit as well. Some of these films were made in 2020, but were released here in 2021. Mm-hmm. And that may be a part of it's because of lockdowns and things like that. But, you know, it's yep. a weird time. Uh, my number five, my first off list, I'm going to go with his Writers of Justice. Okay. Which is the um, Mads Mikkelsen um, Scando. I don't even know where it's from. Scandinavia or Denmark or somewhere like that. But actually, Denmark is in Scandinavia, idiot. Um, but it's uh, about um, where we are here. Uh, Marcus goes home to see his de- to his teenage daughter Matilda when his wife dies in a tragic train accident. It seems like an accident until a mathematics geek, who's also a fellow passenger on the train, and his two colleagues show up, and it sort of turns into a bit of a taken kind of you know vibe from there so Hmm. it's sort of a comedic action thriller uh and i believe it's getting a remake okay okay interesting i just did a quick um date check on a bunch of mine and realized most of them for 2018 (laughs) right wow um i will say um that's like the ones that still definitely do make the cut um last week we talked about encanto and that was quite a standout just for the animation on its own. It was genuinely stunning. We talked about it ad nauseum last week about how much we loved. Did that come um, out last year? 
that was oh no <laughs> oh, damn it i've lost another one <laughs> okay it's close enough it came out in january uh i technically came out 2021 yeah okay yeah um, so yeah absolutely it a great film yeah really really great film um the the voice acting the music um the story that it was going for everything about it just all worked really well it was telling a different story than what we are traditionally used to getting in animation um and it like like we said last week it harkened back to narrative songwriting as well not just oh here's just the musical number because reasons it's it's informative and it progresses the story when they have their story uh, songs and we we don't talk about bruno prime example of that and just the the way that they explain things through the song very well done lin-manuel miranda did a great job um so yeah that's my um first, first one cab off a rank. Yes. My, my second cab off a rank here is judas and the black messiah so if you go you back in time that. i think yeah. we talked about this probably around about may last year mm. um so this is in a case one uh, a couple of academy awards i think uh, most notably i believe it was daniel kaluuya who won for best supporting actor mm-hmm. um it also won best achievement in music um for original song um if this is offered a story about the black panthers and offered a plea mm-hmm. deal by the fbi william o'neill infiltrates the illinois chapter of the black panther party to gather intelligence on chairman fred hampton um, starred uh, as a Daniel Kaluuya, Lakeith Stanfield, Jesse Plemons, also known as Meth Damon, um, <laughs> Martin Sheen as Jay Gahuva. Um, this is a really powerful little film about um, about relationships that can build up in any sort of situation. Probably a fairly standard sort of story. We've seen it before of like, um, what was that Johnny Depp film where he plays a, an undercover guy? Was it Donnie Brasco or something like that? Yeah, yeah, um, Donnie Brasco. Um, but I, I, it was really an interesting little in, inquiry into a, a, a fascinating snippet of American history. And my good Daniel Kaluuya can act. He's goddamn <laughs> awesome. He's so good. He is so damn good. It's I, I kind of feel bad that he was in such a somewhat forgettable um, role in Black Panther because he is so strong. I would love to see him in a starring role in a in a big movie, which invests its time in characters character driven because he is a talent that's just ready to explode well uh, he's got an academy award under his belt now so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i assume he's now um put his price up so good luck to you daniel yeah uh my next one off the ranks is the netflix one that i talked about quite uh, quite animatedly the harder they fall with idris elba uh jonathan majors zazie beats to name but a few i really loved this one it was that kind of popcorn um exploration into the old west i do love my western movies this was just done with like i was saying with encanto and the narrative songwriting this has narrative backstory for the characters and using the fact that it is a 99.9% black cast to inform on the time period and the stories behind each of them. It was just a brilliant medley. It didn't try and take itself too seriously. It had that pulpy kind of vibe that I really love. Um, The action was really good. The performances were great. Jonathan Majors and Idris Elba are just two 
charismatic motherfuckers that just you get them on screen, you get them talking to each other, and suddenly you just go, Yep, I'm happy right now. <laughs> I don't care. Their voices are amazing. The way that they are just emoting so much through their voice, through their eyes, through this little tiny nuanced movements of their um their hands and their head movements and things. It was just really, really well done. It was a tour de force for actors. Absolutely loved it. And this was a Netflix movie. I just so, saw that pop up on a few critics and year lists. So yeah, it's just there, apparently. it's not awards movie material or anything like that. But it just, like I said when I talked about it on the show a couple of weeks ago, it makes its statement on what kind of movie this is going to be from the get go, and it just goes, "Yep, you're either in or you're out. Oh, you're still here. Cool, we're going for a ride." And I love the the confidence of it. Really brilliant. Um, up to number three now for me, and it's starting mm. to get harder here. But mm. I went with Suicide Squad that we talked about. That would Squad. be my three. That would be my but, number three. Um, we kind of jerked off over uh, James Gunn earlier. Um, yep. In the the real brilliant thing about the Suicide Squad, I think, I mean, we didn't really cover earlier, but the original, well, I remember when I read the, the announcement of the original Suicide Squad, and they had the cast. At that point in time, Tom Hardy was attached. Mm-hmm. Um, but the rest of the cast was pretty much as it was. I'm like, that sounds fucking brilliant. Jared Leto as a Joker sounds like a great move. Like he'd come yep. off um, Dallas Buyers Club. He just won his Academy Award. Um, and I, I know people like to diss Jared Leto. He does a lot of crap films, but he is a capable actor when he wants to be. Mm. I remember yeah. going, fuck yeah, I can't wait to see this. When the trailers come out, you're like, yes, this is exactly what I want from a DC mm-hmm. film. And then you saw it, and you're like, oh, oh, wow. That is powerfully awful movie. For like, everything that we repeatedly talk about with the ending of WandaVision, this, the, the that original Suicide Squad movie, did it a thousand times bigger and worse. It's, uh, I mean, uh, anyway, you're going to have a rabbit hole of saying why that film was awful. It's awful. <laughs> awful movie. Mm. Um and when now you're going to remake it like five years after the first one came out, you're like, geez, I tell you, that's that's an interesting turnaround. And yeah. James Gunn produces a sequel, remaking, soft reboot kind of yeah. thing. Um, he take he picks up and goes, what worked about the original? Mm-hmm. Uh, Harley Quinn worked. Uh, Rick Flag kind of worked. And mm-hmm. Viola Davis was fucking great as Amanda Waller. Let's keep them. And yep. let's, uh, Captain Boomerang kind of work. We'll keep the rest, we'll keep them. Unfortunately, yep. didn't keep him for long. <laughs> then just throw the rest of that junk away and recast the rest of the roles and make something that is loud, colorful, mm-hmm. yep. violent, yep. hilarious, fun, mm-hmm. and touching. Yep. Absolutely. And, and, and he nails every single one of those beats. The yep. fight scene where. Um, Margot Robbie's uh, Harley the, Quinn, the, the kind of the color, the colorful, the flowers yeah. and stuff, where she takes on all the guys in the um, big palace or whatever it is, shits all over the the Harley Quinn. I know there are going to be people out there who strongly disagree with that. Um, but I, I always think the, the, the emancipation of one Harleen Quinzel, yeah, that yeah, so much better than her standalone film in the sense that's what she should be, she should be mm-hmm. kicking ass. She shouldn't yep. be fluffing around shooting beanbags at cops. Like perfect you know. sandwich. Um, it, it was she. He just got that character so right, and mm-hmm. to pick up characters like Ratcatcher too. Like, what a stupid name for. Why would you and Polka Dot Man yeah. and make them fucking awesome? 
yeah and make really empathize with those characters so much like, okay what's going on this is and, this is some kind of witchcraft and animated shark voiced by sylvester stallone is the breakout star of a whole thing like that doesn't make any sense you can't do that yep. but he did yep yep um I had, it's the most that. fun superhero film Mm-hmm. Yeah, come that came out last year until my number two. Ah, okay. Well, I would just because you you stole my number three there. You I will talk about my tiebreaker for number two. Yes. Interesting. Um, one of them, not twenty twenty one. It was twenty twenty, but I didn't get to see it until last year, and that was Soul, Pixar's Soul. And the other one is No Time to Die, Daniel Craig's last outing as James Bond. I really yeah. enjoyed Soul. I haven't seen James Bond yet. Yeah. Um, I'm a fan of Bond movies. I like them all for their own credits and merits. Um, this was a great swan song to send James, uh, Daniel Craig off into the sunset and to kind of finish this. Where they go from here, who knows? Um, I kind of feel like the amount of time it took, because No Time to Die should have been there a year before. And COVID happened, then it just kept on getting delayed. Um, I feel like they need to have some time to breathe and really decide what they want to do, what the new feel for the James Bond movies is going to be. Um, it's. I feel like it needs to be changed. What would you do? You've got naked photos of Barbara Broccoli. So you get to cast the next James Bond. Who would you pick? I really don't know who I would pick. Um, Tom Hiddleston was fantastic in his um, public audition in The Night Manager for the role of James Bond. He would be brilliant. Idris Elba is a big fan favourite and he would kill it in any role. He always does. Um, I would kind of like them to, to do maybe a gender swap if they actually make it part of the fucking character and maybe this bond, one of the reasons why they have a bit of a chip on their shoulder and they frequently go rogue is because M is a fucking asshole and don't gender bend everything. Let's keep M like Dame Judi Dench was fantastic as M. Ralph Fiennes was great as the new M, but let's get a new female M and have it antagonistic there. Two women, just these really strong, well-thought-out, intelligent women having these ideas and just have have that go because that's a rich opportunity to show something different in this world um, and bring some new, fresh vitality to the world of Bond. Bond is a fictional character. Does not matter about gender. It can be what it can be whatever it needs to be. Yeah. Yes. If you're gonna um, change it though, make it part of the character, make it inform the story. Please. If you really want to, the first villain they go up against is a misogynist. Sure. Why not? Make it easy. Make it easy to hate that person. That would be but, lazy. That would be very lazy. Oh, of course it would. But it would be a cheap, quick way of introducing, but at the same time cheap, quick female action movies, we're getting a lot of those, unfortunately, with Black Widow, with that um, the 355 one that's just come out this year, with so so many of the ones that are like, okay, yeah, it's a strong female lead. It's like, yeah, but you're not doing anything interesting here. Give them something to do. 
please. But I honestly don't know what I would do. I would kind of like to see them, maybe Aaron Sorkin, get more of that political spy element on it rather than the action element, where he's, um, where Bond, the, the Bond character, is infiltrating things through debate, conversation. That was one of the real things that worked with um, Casino Royale was the, the intimacy of the poker table. And the intimacy of, of having so much set in a single room, it would be fucking br- That's the, the opening to that movie where he's just sitting down having a conversation in the black and white sequence of that, of Casino Royale. That was great. Again, I have, two hot, I have two hot takes that could do it for me. Mm. Hot take one, John Boyega. Love him. Would love a Chad, mm. James Bond. Okay. Uh, I know they kind of did that with the Kingsman, but if we did it without the jokes... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I like John Boyega. I think he was massively, powerfully wasted by Disney in the Star Wars sequels. Um, yep, yep, very fair. Real super hard take, Sasha Baron Cohen. <sighs> Could do anything he puts his mind to. That is 100% true. That is a that is an out of left field thought and I'm kind of all for it. He, he's never done action before really, except in stuff like Grimsby, which is like a joke, but surely yeah, he could. That, that would be interesting. Whatever it was like, he was like originally from Israel or something like that. You know, he was like a, uh, you know, trained by the Israelis. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. they will do what they'll do. I'm, I, I'm yeah. looking forward to seeing it when I get a chance. My number two, mm. and this is a tight call. But my number two is um, Spider-Man No Way Home. Okay. Okay. Um, I think we talked about this every week at length. I won't go into too much more detail, but it's just fun. It's yeah. just, I know it's fan service and, you know, it didn't necessarily break any new barriers in, in you know, trying to tell a different story or subverting expectations or anything like that. But you mm. know, Chloe Zhao was trying to do a little bit with Eternals, except, yeah. you know, there's something to be said for if you do something that's relatively straightforward, but you do it perfectly mm. as opposed to doing something difficult and fucking it up completely. Yeah. yeah we give you some respect for trying something hard, but you still fucked it up. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, a, a good sponge cake made perfectly is a beautiful thing. And I think that's what Spider-Man is. And I think it still did something a little bit different. It was playing around with the the, um, the multiverse for the first time in, in live action, mm-hmm. um, you know, Marvel Cinematic Universe. So mm-hmm. that that didn't come necessarily. You could have screwed that up. You could have made it too confusing. They, yeah. re- they put the um, great responsibility, great power, great responsibility speech in there again, this mm-hmm. time of Aunt May. Um, and, of course, you know, I, I go back to it again, like, what for people who criticize it for not necessarily trying very hard to do anything difficult, you know, there is something to be said for, for escapist cinema. And I have not heard the outpouring of joy that this film brought out in people Mm -hmm. in many other places, like Australian, maybe happens in American cinemas, but people don't shout and clap and cheer in Australian cinemas. It doesn't happen. Like I've I've said it again. The only other time I ever saw it was in Endgame. When all the heroes came back on your left, the on your left moment and the moment where Cap holds Mjolnir. Those yep. are the only moments I've seen that even approach what mm-hmm. I heard during the Spider-Man screening I was at. So it made me happy. It made the fans happy. And, you know, 
it, it was fun and entertaining and at, yeah. all at the same time. And, you know, yeah. um, I, I thought it was genius and I think it's only downhill. But it's going to be so hard for the, the guys at Marvel Sony to come yeah. up with anything that approaches that whenever they decide to go back to the Spider-Man films. Yeah. It's gonna be it's gonna be a challenge. They're gonna be a victim of their own success potentially. Um, I think one of the big things that makes it um, winning for me it's it's not my not in my top five. Um, and the the fact that they're trying to push it for best picture in the Oscar nominations, no, it's 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 a different kind of movie. It's it's a fantastic movie, but anyway, um, it's one of the uh, since Endgame this kind of feels like its own unique story standalone from everything else. Everything else that Disney Marvel have shown us since Endgame has basically been feeding and preparing for the next thing, the next big Avengers team-up movie. And you kind of get that in this because you get the three Spider-Mans together and you do get that team-up kind of element. But at the same time, I said this when we talked about the movie ad nauseum it's still laser focused on peter parker and not spider-man peter parker but peter parker as peter parker and his struggles and his stripes and he made everything is good when he is spider-man he he makes everything fun and exciting and thrilling but it's dramatic and relatable and empathetic when he is the peter parker um, the character as well and that serves it so well that was one of the things that worked really well with shang chi um the relationship with him between him and katie and him and his dad um goes off on flights of fancy at the end with the um with the with the dragon and things like that but it still just told a <laughs> despite being a multiversal story it actually told a simple story of a young man, a young growing man who wants to just live a normal life. And it didn't do it in any overly complex way of going into these deep emotional rabbit holes or anything like that. It just told it. And it just so happened to coincide with physical manifestations of his problems in, in a weird way. It did well. Now, what's number two for you? You've had number two. Uh, are we at number one for you now? Uh, we're at number one, yeah, because I uh, cheated with a little bit with Soul and uh, No Time to Die. So number one for me, it's not going to really surprise anyone. It's the movie that I've been waiting for for a while. It's Dune. Come on. Denis Villeneuve. Phenomenal visuals. Hans Zimmer delivered one of his best musical scores. It had the emotional soberness and loneliness of um what he did for the dark knight but it brought in this beautiful kind of synthy element of original alien music um and the performances were fantastic timothy chalamet is possibly my favorite actor young actor working right now he was phenomenal in little women he was amazing in the king in 2018 or 2019 whenever that was he was great as um, Muadib. He's he's going to have one hell of a shining future. Um, the all star cast behind um, behind them in this movie was fantastic. I loved how they translated the book into the movie. They kept in the essential stuff. They lost some really important things for the book, but it still made coherent sense. 
they spent a little bit too much time maybe on the the dreams of Chani, but overall this again. Was a huge win for me. A huge win for me. Yeah, I know I was I'm I'm really the old one out here who just thought it was just way too long and way too slow. But <laughs> um I think it's a if you're either on board of the June stuff or you're not. Mm. Um but I'll go pay it. It looked gorgeous, it sounded amazing. The yeah. costumes are amazing, the effects were amazing. He just mm-hmm. needed Dean Neil just needed again that person to tap him on the shoulder and go, mate, cut two or three of those. They've mm-hmm. got the point. I yeah. think they get the point. I mm-hmm. think they get the point where Timothy Chalamans and Dyer are gonna end up being important together. And they're gonna get together like we don't need to see it 74 times. Yeah. Oh god, that second half was boring. Okay. <laughs> I feel like I feel like every director in the edit room needs to have this little post-it note on the corner. Can you cut five minutes? Just five minutes. Five minutes would have made a difference, I guess. But anyway, I know it's a very, very deep, long story. So he needed mm-hmm. and two and a half hours is probably <laughs> fairly disciplined. I imagine mm-hmm. there'll be a special edition DVD coming out, a la the Steve the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings ones. It'll be like four hours long or something. And there'll be people out there like like yourself and plenty of people who be like, oh, yes, give me more. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that, that it did well enough to get part two, that's great as well. well I mean, I guess, really yeah, it's it's great. He's, he's a great filmmaker, Denny Villeneuve. Despite the fact I thought it was too long and boring, um, doesn't detract from the fact that I understand what he's achieved there is mm. remarkable. Mm. Um, I, my number one film is is technically came out was in, in 2020 other places but came out in 2021 here okay and it's a significantly smaller story than june and spider-man i've gone with promising young woman um oh, yeah. this is the, the feature uh the, the first feature film by director writer emerald fennell emerald fennell starred as camilla parker bowles in the crown if you don't know who that is um, okay. You will know who she is because she is a major new talent, I think, based mm-hmm. on this film. This stars Carrie Mulligan and Bo Burnham and Alison Brie, uh, Clancy Brown, Adam Brody, um, a few other people you might recognize in there as well. Christopher Mintz Plass, a.k.a. Um, McLovin. <laughs> Laverne Cox in there as well. Um, a young woman traumatized by a tragic, tragic event in their path. Past seeks out vengeance against those who cross their path. So uh, Carrie Mulligan he plays a woman who gets drunk, uh, actually pretends to get drunk in bars to the point where she can't, she needs, she can't control herself, or she can't stay awake, or she doesn't know what's going on, and mm-hmm. allows men to take her home uh, under the pretense that they're looking after her. And then when they try to start taking advantage of her, she basically calls them out on their shit. Um, and what a genius film this is! Just sort of little points where uh, Emerald Fennell deliberately cast the men who take Carrie Mulligan home to basically rape her. She mm. uh, she deliberately cast men who were known for playing friendly, likable characters on sitcoms and in comedy movies. So like we mm. talked about Krista Mintz-Plass. I mean, Glavin is one of those guys who um, takes takes Carrie Mulligan home and attempts to rape her, and he keeps going on, but I'm a nice guy. And we know him as the funny, lovable, quirky McLovin, or uh, Adam Brody, I think, might have been one of the other ones. I, I wasn't overly familiar with um, most of the actors doing it, but I'm like, that guy was on a sitcom, I think. Mm. Um, and, and that's a nice little uh, nod to it. You know, you, you can't really base these decisions off what the man looks like, um, you know, these, or seems nice. but And they might claim to be nice guys, but they have absolutely no self-awareness about what they're doing. Um uh, this film 
rocked my world. I just sat there for a minute, I think, after the film finished and just sort of had to take a breath and go, fuck, man, I feel like I need a shower after that film, after <laughs> just the disgusting characters that Emerald Fennell has created. The ending, I found it a little bit convenient. Um, other people will disagree with me on that one. I thought it was a little bit Scooby-Doo, um, which is probably okay. out of sync with a lot of the rest of the film, despite the fact it was actually a very satisfying ending. But the fact that I got a satisfying ending kind of wasn't what I was expecting from this film. Mm. Um, uh, I believe Emerald Fennell won Best Original Screenplay uh, mm -hmm. at the Oscars uh, earlier in the year. I think she deserved Best Picture. This is a significantly streets, miles, daylight lengths better than Nomadland, which won. Mm. Um, and she deserved Best um, Director as well because the film looks incredible. Mm. Uh, everything in this film is done for deliberate effect. Uh, no, it's a must see for anybody with young boys. Um, I say, poor, uh, it's a pretty shocking in parts, but if you've got a teenage boy, um, I would sit him down and watch this film with him as, as a parent, if you could. Um, I think is an incredibly important message to send to, to men everywhere to, to think about mm. what they're doing and how we're raising the next generation. It was mind blowing. I, well-deserved uh, number one film of the year, despite the fact it came out in 2020, most other places. <laughs> Fair enough. I will accept your loophole. <laughs> well, well, benefits to being like, you're all right, though. You sort of said at the start uh, that, that there was a bit of a dearth of really good films to pick from. Yeah. Um, I had to kind of dredge a little bit to find stuff I'd seen this year that I thought was worthy of a top five. Yeah. So, because the the other things that were in there that I hadn't watched before this year, um, I briefly mentioned it: The King with Timothy Chalamet on Netflix, Black Klansman. I didn't watch that until this year, and that was fantastic. And um, we both really enjoyed our chain movie a couple of weeks ago. Can you ever forgive me? But they were from like 2018, 2019. Honorable mentions for me were Minari and mm. Free Guy. Oh yeah, I had forgotten about Free Guy entirely. <laughs> wow. <laughs> to be sure, right. this got a lot longer than I thought it would. Yeah, uh, we we had some good things to talk about. <laughs> All right, well, let's wrap up the show for there. Um, the next week we've got a new chain movie, which is the 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 permanent love of my childhood, um, Explorers. Um, we'll probably talk more about Peacemaker, the latest Bob Fett. Um, I think. No, I don't think uh, Critical Role. I might, I might have some early thoughts on Critical Role by next week. Oh no, it'll be Wednesday night that I'll be able to get some early screenings on that one, so I get to see the first two episodes early. Yay! Because I backed it on Kickstarter. That's uh, why. Not well, because I, we I, have suddenly broken through and we now have access to. This. I was going to say, you we get access <laughs> to things now. Like I'd be okay with that. <laughs> um of course we will have our weekly sponsors that are entirely relevant and poignant to the times um and lots more no doubt so anything else final that you need to say travis no i'll be watching next week i, I watched we haven't got time to talk about it but i watched a jake Gyllenhaal film from 2013 called enemy the other night which is actually oh, yes. also a Denis Villeneuve film. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, if we have a chance, we all talk about it next week. It has potentially the most terrifying final scene in a film 
I have ever seen. <laughs> there we go. We'll find out next week. On that lovely note, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe on Twitch, on Twitter, on YouTube, on Facebook. Um, it does all really the places, help. all the places, all the spots. Uh, until next time, good night. Good night.